Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all 7 continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Boom. Hello, Christopher. All right there. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of am, mate. I'm, it, it's like trying to run a, a TV studio with absolutely no experience of running a TV studio. I train for the Marines, mate. What, 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 what do people expect? This is the thing that done me about. I mean, I wanted to have a YouTube channel for about two years before I finally sorted out how to do it. And I'd be watching these kids in Russia, like nine years old, who had YouTube channels. And I had people on the phone to me telling me what to do, what software to get. Just couldn't do it. It took me about two years to sort it out. So I, I understand the problems for people of our vintage. Yes. Vintage and uh, I'm going to just chip brain damage in. <laughs> yeah. That's... that's <laughs> That's my excuse. It's all, all the brain cells I've I've lost over the years in places like Cambodia. Yeah. <laughs> so how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm really good actually. I um I woke up this morning. And I, I do an early morning stream, and I, I had a bit of a headache, and I thought, well, maybe if I get active, it will pass, and it didn't. And towards the end of the stream, I started feeling quite nauseous, and I just had to say, I've got to go. I threw a sickie off work, went to bed. Thought I won't be doing my afternoon stream, and then I was like, "Ah, oh, balls! I've got Chris's under podcast tonight." <laughs> so I thought, "Well, I'll, I'll just go to bed and see what happens." And I woke up in woke up about eight o'clock in the evening, feeling all right actually. So I actually did do my own afternoon stream, and when that went fine, I thought, "Oh, great! I'll, I'll be fine to talk to Chris." So you know, when you've been sick in any way, when you stopped being sick, I'm so grateful to not being bared and ill. It's like being reborn. So I'm. I'm kind of grateful for being sick this morning because now I remember how good life is. So I'm a bit like that. So I'm over the moon at the moment. It's nice to be alive. Nice to be doing this. Thank you for asking. Oh, well, no, thank you. Thank you for having me on your show the other day. It's brilliant. I've been watching your show for, for quite a while. And I see you've got a good bunch of, um, I hate the word subscribers, but what do we call them? Friends at home. Scrubs. My lot of scrubs. Scrubs. <laughs> yes so right where do i start it's the hundredth bought the t-shirt podcast um before i properly introduce you chris or, or or you can properly introduce yourself i should just say some thank yous um it's a funny old journey the podcast it's it comes down i guess to what i say a lot which is uh, take action. If you want any changes in your life, and I think we've both been uh, through a few of those over the years, you know nothing's going to happen unless you, um, you know, you get you you get on top of it and bang, you take action. So here I was one day thinking, I really like that Joe Rogan podcast. What a cool way to live! You get to blooming do all these things. With great guests, and they pay you for, it. <laughs> and they pay you for it, right? And then you can go down the gym and show everyone your muscles, right? So 
I thought, right, okay, yeah, I'll do one of those. <laughs> so, oh, there we go. So I started talking into that webcam camera and uh, yeah, I've never looked back, <laughs> as they say. Um, but on that journey, I've met some wonderful people, um, truly have made some great friends. I've met people that I never expected to meet across all walks of walks of life, including yourself, Chris. Um, it really has been a dream come true. That said, I should do some thank yous. So, first of all, to the subscribers, my friends at home, thank you so much for um, so much for supporting the podcast, basically supporting me. Right from the beginning, I remember some of you were there when I had 600 subscribers. Chris, I'm number 601. And I, I get it now, you know, it didn't mean so much back then because I was new to it all and desperate to get that 1,000 subscribers to get your monetization and your, was it 40,000 hours or something? Can't quite remember. But um, so, yeah, so the first massive thank you is to everybody at home. Um, you know who you are, people that are regularly in the chat, um, thumbing up and all that sort of stuff. Thumbing up the video, I mean, not not the other kind of <laughs> not the other kind of thumbing up. Um, Brooke, massive shout out to Brooke, who's um, moderated right from the start. Brooke and Tony, thank you so much. Uh, don't want this to sound like an Oscar speech, but of course my, my girlfriend Jenny and my little boy have been supportive as ever. Marty, my um, producer, who sadly is no longer with us. Um, Marty's gone on to, I'm going to say fresher fields. Let's just say I'm all about awakenings, especially when it comes to all this social media, which um, it seems quite damaging, doesn't it? Really, in the in in the long run, or the, or the 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 future, where it's all going, does make you question things, especially when when you're a parent. You know, what do you want for for your children? So, that being said, my much love to you, mate. Thank you so much for. Um, I think you helped me take the channel from about ten thousand subscribers up to forty thousand. We've got some great guests. We have Robbie Williams, Ollie Ollerton, Colin McLaughlin, um, everyone really. I don't rate anyone above anybody else. In fact, the reason I started the podcast is so I can speak to people who I want to speak to. It doesn't matter what um, who they are, where they are, or, or what they do. If they've got a story that interests me, I'd love to hear it. Um, I do love to hear it so thank you to to all of our guests and um I'm gonna shush there because I'm sure um oh I should say thank you to all of my uh my team my growing team uh Blake who's been really great at uploading all my podcasts to LinkedIn um Brooke's been do up uploading some to my blog We've got Chrissy running the Patreon, um, and yeah, 
it goes on. We've got Steve, Steve or, or Robbo. Robbo's been helping me to kind of get a grip of where, not just the channel, but where my future's going with, with respect to the adventuring and charity work. This is getting fucking boring now, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> Chris, I love to have someone on my 100th podcast that has had a night out with um, Boy George, Michael Barrymore, and all the gay people that have abused people. <laughs> Congratulations. I, can I just put in there? Am I? Am I? I'm not on mute. Can I just put in there? I lived in Soho for over a decade, I think, and so I was the only straight in the village. So the many, the many gay events, we'll call them, um, that I've had were more to do with geography than anything else. I was also on Channel Four with Rupert Everett, another another um, gay one. I was t- I was saying on my stream today, I had dinner with. Holly Johnson from Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Fat Tony, Boy George. I've had dinner with Marilyn. Do you remember Marilyn? I do. Uh, another one of that lot. All very nice people. And, and I'll tell you what, it was quite good to be around them because they're very good with style. They certainly helped me look good and, uh, and, and taught me about male grooming. You know, I, I washed up in Soho after getting clean after most of my adult life as a junkie. And, and they sort of, they taught me about looking good and looking after myself. And, oh, I had dinner with Julian Clary in Noel Coward's old house. There's another one. Julian Clary's gay, if you didn't know. I don't know if he's made that clear. Um, I, I, I have my suspicions, mate. You know? <laughs> it's kind of apparent. Um, yeah, some, some weird turnouts. But, um, yeah, I think it was where I lived, really. Yes. And now you're in Cambodia, which is, um, my gosh, that conjures up all sorts of stuff for me. I had a particularly interesting visit to um, Cambodia on one of my world travels. But how do you find it there? I absolutely love this place. I, I, I won't probably won't believe uh, believing that there'd need to be some very radical political and social changes in the UK for me to go back. Um, also, I've fallen in love here, which is keeping the year. I wouldn't want to take her out of this place. She loves it. She's got a faulty strong family here. Very much about family, this country. Um, it, it's weird because I never travelled in my 20s and 30s because of my addictions. When I finally got clean, when I was, what, 36, maybe 35, it still took a couple of years for me to travel and I went to Thailand and uh, fell in love with Thailand. You know, I, I, I consider Patong, which is a shithole, I'll be honest. It's kind of my spiritual home. I've had one of the one of the great love stories of my life in Patong. My novel that's coming out in December is about Patong. Well, it's about me, but in Patong. Um, I always thought I'd live there. I always thought it would be Thailand that I lived. But I ended up with a girlfriend in England for my sins. And she was like, well, you always talk about Thailand. Why don't we go on holiday there? And I was thinking, oh dear, oh, this, this puts me in a bit of a bind considering the sort of things I'd got up to in Thailand. So I sort of styled it and said, well, Cambodia is meant to be lovely. And so she bought it and we came here. And it was quite, quite, it's very different actually from Thailand. Cambodia is not so um, tourist based. I mean, I know Isan isn't tourist based and a lot of Thailand isn't, but Cambodia is even less so. 
And I started to discover a very different country and a very different people. Obviously, they've had a very tragic and recent history. Um, when it, when I finally finished with her, and I mean finally, it took years to actually get out of that mess because of my own lack of commitment to leaving her. But, um, I thought I'll move to Thailand. I thought, well, here we go. You're finally, finally free. You've got a bit of money in your pocket. You work remotely so I can live, I can work from anywhere. I thought I'll move to Thailand. And at the last minute, I was thinking, do I want to marry my mistress, so to speak? If I move to Patong, it's going to lose its magic because you always get sick and tired of where you live because you live there. Um, and it's going to, yeah, it will lose its magic. And I thought, give Cambodia a go. I nearly left in the first month. I was, I really struggled here. A lot of the things I've done in my life are quite impulsive. You know, I came here with a, a passport, a debit card, and a, a little tiny backpack, you know, next to nothing. I had this idea that I was going to live in hotels and just sort of move around, commit to no place like the rest of my life. Um, and I hadn't really thought about the challenges of a new place because I thought I was going to go to Thailand. I know Patong really well. I've got loads of friends there. But because I came here, I got quite lonely. Um, I found out a lot of things about this country that I didn't know that were quite hard to deal with. It was monsoon season, which made moving about very difficult because it is kind of wet for a couple of hours every day. Yeah, and I nearly left. And I thankfully, I bumped into one of the scrubs. Um, he hit me up. He said, I'm in Cambodia. And I talked to him and he said, yeah, I nearly left. He said, you just moved to a new, a new country. He said, if it wasn't difficult, there's something wrong with you. You know, you're, you're, you're normal. And I said, to, I remember I said to him, I said, the thing is, man, I'm always sweating. And I put it down to years of drugs. I thought that I damaged my, my humidifier or something. I said, I'm just always soaking wet. This, I can't live like this. And he went, everyone is always sweating. And he said, just look about. And of course, I, once I got out of my self-obsession and actually spent some time considering other people, yeah, it's a hot country. Um, that was nearly three years ago. And now I've got an amazing uh, house. I just moved into a new place a few months ago. Um, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Brilliant. And we should talk about the build-up to that. Chris, I'm just I'm, I'm sorry if my eyes are all around the screen. It's just I've got all this technology going on. And do I gather that there's a, a tick in the friends at home? Can you tell us? Can you hear like a ticking? Um, yeah, exactly. The guy, it's gone. It's gone. Is it maybe when I'm talking? Hang on. It really does sound like one of us has got like a heart monitor on or something. It's stopped now that I pulled this away from me. Um, People are saying it's back. Yeah, there it is. It's back. Yes, when Chris talks. Yes, when okay. danger, danger spoke. Um, I wonder if it might be something at my end. Um, I'm not sure if it is, mate, because it was my... Apparently it's my microphone. I'm not sure. How would he know? Um, bum. Hey, for... Friends at home, this is the joys of live. Right, it's gone now. 
It's back. Oh, this is so exciting. It's, um... Now, there are insects here, and when I talk, they get a bit ratty. It's, there is an insect here going... It might be that. I can hear... Let me... I'll tell you what. Let me just, um, one second... Can you speak now, Chris? Just say something. Yeah, one in Cambodia with a ticking time bomb behind me. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I don't get it. Bear with us a sec, folks. I'm just trying to see if there's something obvious. Um. There is a very, Chris, there is a very loud insect in my house. There is. I'm serious. I... Oh. <laughs> uh, and then his legs fell off. <laughs> oh, how annoying. Um, yeah, so I don't think it's about the mute mute friends at home. I don't think it's about the mute. There's there's something going on here. I, I do have a ceiling fan on, but it's silent. It's it's I can't hear that ever. Yeah, I wonder if it's the pulse through your electrics. Um, ah, okay. Anyway, let let's carry on if. If everyone doesn't mind, I'm going to be looking around, trying to, trying to um, get to the bottom of this. But so, how your you've got your diaries, Chris, right, which are written off the back of your drug experience or your experience of addiction. The crack diaries, is that right? No, the, the crack diaries are a three-part video I made. I'm writing them up. I've started writing them. They're gonna. That's my next project. But I've written a novel over the last four years. That sounds dramatic. I haven't. I didn't really discipline for the last six months. It would have been. It should have only taken a year. I wasn't really committed. But that should be out in December. And that's the true story of after attending about twenty rehab and detox facilities, I ended up using again quite a lot, as it tends to be. And I thought, I can't go to another rehab. I just can't go through that nonsense again. So I jumped on a plane and went to Patong, locked myself in a room and just climbed the walls for a few weeks. And that, that book is, the timeline of that novel is man leaves England to go to Thailand to get clean. Man jumps on a plane to go home. So it covers, it's like a six-week story. But it does go back to my childhood. You know, it covers, you know, loads of things. It's, it's kind of two novels in one, really. There's a novel written in the first person present, which is all the stuff in Thailand, and there's a novel written in first person past, which is my childhood, and they're kind of interwoven together. True story of going, withdrawing in, in Thailand and all the madness that happened during that, because unsurprisingly, it wasn't plain sailing. No, <laughs> it's... Uh... It never is, is it? It's always a uh, few steps forward, few steps back. 
least that's you're, what you're focusing on that you're focusing on that sound aren't you i can see you, you. Can tell, i think it's you. an insect i, I would, think it's an insect mate i would just ignore it it's just that um it's just such a shame for future listeners that they're always going to have to listen to this unless for some reason I can find out what it is, but I don't think I'm going to because it comes and goes, so it's not like a obvious software issue, right? Um, okay. And I feel really rude, mate, and I don't mean to be. It, it's just... Um, ah. Fucking technology, isn't it? It's, see, now I've got the live chat off. Um... I was going to say it stopped. It, I was going to say it stopped and then it just started again. I'm almost wondering, is it the live chat as it's ticking up? Pass. Well, some people can't hear it, apparently. and Everyone's saying it sounds okay. Crack yeah, on, well, go on. Yeah, let's smash it. Let's smash on. So, what, what was your kind of... Um, how does your... Your drug journey, how does that gel with your comedy career? Was Did they go side by side in the UK or did you start? I mean, I started partying in the rave scene, basically, or back in the, da- the dance era, um, back when it was, <laughs> it was all utopia and uh, never sort of, never sort of envisaged it taking me down some of the, um, the, the roads that it did. How how was it for you, Chris? No, it was I I had been using drugs since I was a teenager and um it, I actually started doing comedy once I got clean. Like I said, I went I'd been through so many different rehabs and detoxes, all of them hideous places, kinda necessary at the time, even if they only gave me a break. You know, some of them I was taking in on stretchers, you know, yellow, weighing about sixty kilos. I'm 6'2", so 60 kilos isn't great. Um, but they never really worked. And then a, about 35, 36, I went to one, which is a completely different affair. Um, a lot of a lot of very well-known people had been there, including Nick Cave, which was cool. His album, The Boatman Call, was written about his experiences at that place and that town. And I was a little fan of that uh, record, which sounds pathetic, but it, it did make me trust that place to an extent. So I thought, well, hang on, if, if one of my heroes got through it once i'd been there for about six weeks i thought oh you know you're clean now you you know i had a successful business so i'd set up what i was using which was is sort of counter to you know usual trends with heroin and crack addiction but i did and i thought what am i going to do with my time how am i going to feel 24 hours a day i'm usually asleep for 23 of those and i I thought, well, I've always told stories. I've always kind of held court when we've gone into boozers or whatever. I thought, I'll, I'll do stand-up. And so I, I started doing it almost immediately. I left that rehab and I started doing open mics. Within a few years, I was doing pretty well. I was starting to get paid gigs. I, I relapsed about six years later. No, actually about five years into my comedy career. Didn't really affect it. I mean, I sweat a bit more on stage, but it, it carried on doing pretty well. I'd done stand up for about 10 years in total. And by the end of it, you know, I could put on my own show in London, you know, headline act and uh, one support. I'd earn a thousand quid for an hour gig. So I was happy with that. 
But by the end of it, you know, the, the political situation in England situation in England had changed. Political correctness and advanced far leftism had totally invaded the comedy circuit. And for someone like me who was telling pretty grotty stories, you know, my whole character was built around upsetting people and being as, as grotty and gross as possible. You know, there were I was kind of generous with the truth, as, as generous with the truth as I was with the artifice. You know, it was a combination of both. I'll take a story that happened and I'd sort of push it a little bit further in my imagination and that, that was my act. My whole persona was, was almost an act, you know. I, I, even when I was interviewed, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say things like that. I wouldn't say that. I'd actually play the character that you'd see on stage as part of the promotion. But by the end of it, I thought there's no place for me in this lark. You know, I was always getting massively very good reviews. My two solo Edinburgh shows had queues out the door and down the street. But would any agents come near me? No, there's no place for me. And, and you know, what, what do you do with comedians these days? If you're not going to put them on panel shows, there's not much else for them. And you're not going to put me on a panel show. I, what, what, what they're going to, there's no room for me in that, in that environment. And so by the end of it, I just thought, well, I've proved the point to myself. I have been, I have done well at this. But I was already keeping an eye on YouTube and I thought, you know, I could, rather than schlepping across to zone six to play in a room of 30 people for 40 quid, I can probably sit on my ass on YouTube and, and looking at the other people that were doing it, I could maybe play to a few hundred or a few thousand. And, uh, it seemed like a better, a better move than in retrospect most certainly was. Yeah, you do it really well, mate. You're, you, you, you're a really good speaker, aren't you? You're very measured. I'm quite reactive, you know, I, I can't, um, my, my concentration's not the best and I, I tend to be, um, yeah, like this, like not, not basically <laughs> knowing what I'm going to say, which is, my stand-up career would be pretty limited, I reckon. But, um, no, you do it, you, you do your social, can you call it social commentary? Is that a, yeah, I mean, it's, I think my channel's a little bit schizophrenic because I started off just telling stories. There was a bit, I used to dig out feminism a little bit. And I think when I started my channel 2016, Gamergate was all the rage. So a lot of social justice warriors were, you know, so I sort of grab hold of those. But over time, it's become a lot more political. I mean, I told a couple of stories about my parents a few weeks ago and I, I, I do intend to do more storytelling on my channel, but there's a certain urgency to a lot of the politics I'm involved in at the moment. So that seems to have taken over. But, you know, it's funny you say that about you, you don't know what to say, but I don't think I do really. There's a great quote by a French thinker, Michel Foucault, who says, what I say takes me by surprise and teaches me what I think. Chris, keep and, talking. I've just got no, an idea. I will. Keep, keep talking. <laughs> don't worry about that. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Quick, while he's gone, I'll do a strip. <laughs> I'm naked. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know me, I'll tell you why I'm naked. Hey, Google, what's the temperature? The current temperature in Phnom Penh is 28 degrees. Humidity, it feels like it's 34. Sorry, go. brother. 2am and it's 34. What did you do? Turn the bomb off? I'll just use the F word. Don't, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it. <laughs> no, I was just... Um, oh, I was just checking if, the, if there was something on in the building that's causing this 
this you've got to let this go, man. Yeah, like, I know, I, but I it assure does, it does... you, I assure you, those ticks aren't going to destroy this stream as much as you focusing on it. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> As the consummate professional, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it doesn't help when there's bastards in the live chat saying that we need a sound engineer. No, no, no. <laughs> We've Even done a year. we got a year without this nonsense. Yes. So, um, Cambodia, mate, I, I was there. Um, where was it? I was traveling through Thailand for probably, I think I've been to Thailand about four times now and, um, one hell of a place, especially, especially if you were there like 30 years ago. I think I was there in 90, 93. What's that? About 27 years ago. Um, I always used to say, um, one night in Bangkok <laughs> and it, and it really, it really was. But I was there one time, I think about, I don't know, about 2002. And I, then I traveled up through Cambodia. Just looking at my map now. So I don't say the wrong places. Yeah. I traveled into Cambodia and then across into Vietnam and then up into, into Laos. Um, but all I remembered of Cambodia was didn't, didn't Blue Peter have a Cambodia appeal back in the day? Do you remember that? I, 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 they, they were. Oh, I hated Blue Peter. I've done a video about it. I didn't want to come home from a, a, a school where I didn't want to learn and watch TV where I didn't want to learn. I wanted Grain Jewel or nothing. I, I, God, me and my brother hated Blue Peter. Always collecting ring pulls for something, uh, possibly. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what they used to do, wasn't it? Send in, send in your milk bottle tops and. We'll convert them into cash for these famine-ridden areas around the world. But I'm sure Cambodia was one of them. And I don't think, well, obviously, um, any, uh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, none of us kids knew where Cambodia was. It sounded like it was maybe in Africa or something. And, um, but I think they had this huge, huge famine. So to visit there as an, as an adult was quite interesting. Um, when I was in Phnom Penh, I think, I think I, the first, one of the first places I went to was the Tool Slang Museum. Is it, is it still there? Although, mu museum isn't really the right word, is it? No, it's, it's, it's the old torture quarters for the killing fields and it's a, yeah, very hard day out. Yeah. And I went there on a come down, which probably wasn't the, I did Auschwitz on a come down and, and, um, Phnom, Phnom Penh or, or, uh, Tall Slang. So, uh, yeah, gives you a bit of insight into my kind of travel, <laughs> travel history. That place was, I, I don't think you could really describe the horror of, of being there. Am I making sense? I'm probably not making sense. No, 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 without a doubt. I mean, the, the whole, I've, I've got to be a little bit careful because I'm here, but what happened here with the whole Pol Pot thing has been really, it's been underplayed in the West. You know, it hasn't really received a lot of attention compared with like the famine in Ethiopia, which, you know, sort of was a 24-7 stream in early 80s UK. Even Biafra in the 70s was everywhere. But 
no, what happened here was a genocide, without a doubt. Like a, a third of the population was tortured or starved to death. And, was... and, and, by, and by children. they got He got children to do a lot of that torture and murder because in his head, they hadn't been stained by capitalist ideology. And uh, all the intellectuals were killed. Anyone that they thought were intellectual. I mean, if you had glasses, you were killed. It was this kind of ridiculous. Now, think, think about what that does to a, to, a, to a gene pool. Because if you're killing all the clever people, um, you know, the next generation aren't going to be the brightest, you know. And, and some of the horror stories, like my, I met, I used to go to see a nukeville in the south, south west coast. And there was a, the woman that cleaned the room of the hotel I used to go to. I used to go there all the time because I got familiar with the people, including this lady. Um, her mother went into the Cambodian troubles with 13 siblings, 13 brothers and sisters. And only her, only her came out of it. You know, 12, all the other 12 were murdered. And that, that, that stuff, um, damages a place. You can tell this country, although it's, it's growing now, it's, and it's changing rapidly. You know, some for, some, some, some things for the better, some not so good, which is kind of typical with progress. But, um, that trauma, you can feel that trauma coming from the people. You know, that a lot of people are missing limbs. It's quite, quite standard to have a few fingers missing and just off of ordinary people. You know, they went through absolute hell here. And when you meet anyone who's over 45 or 40 or whatever, they went through it. They went through it as children as well. And you can tell there's just something about them. You don't, you don't get away with that sort of thing. And it, and it, and it's quite hard. It's hard. It's hard for the country to come to terms with it. So for people at home who, who are not familiar with this history, it was, Pol Pot came to power over uh, and over the what the Khmer Rouge, and he deemed that anybody of any sort of intelligence, say like school teachers, professors, scientists, anyone in this kind of realm, was a threat to the the kind of peasant utopia that he he envisaged, um, and he systematically set about? about set about putting them to death. Is that, is that? Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, as with most communist revolutions, they don't say it out. They don't lay it out uh, uh, like that initially. They're, they're, there's re-education camps, but the re-education camps quickly become like the Tong Seng Museum murder camps. You know, you know, fuck all this trying to re-educate and we can just do them off. We haven't got a lot of food. The nation was starving anyway. He moved everyone out of the cities and, you know, because capitalism was awful and technology was awful, moved them all out into the cities, got everyone farming. They weren't farmers. He wasn't a farmer. There wasn't enough food. And so you've got a lack of food. So you start, you start, you know, if you can't feed everyone, why don't you kill a load of them? We don't need them. These people are a pain in the ass anyway, according to him. But on, on that note, what, you know, it's bizarre what happens in these situations because when the Khmer Rouge, which is the Red Cambodians, you know, much like Mao's Red Army, which was made up of students, um, uh, Pol Pot's uh, Khmer Rouge, they were living in Angkor Wat, the, the incredible, uh, one of the wonders of the world, the old temples up there. When they rolled into uh, Phnom Penh, they were cheered. They were applauded because everyone thought that they'd sided with King Sihanouk, who the, who the people adored. And they, they'd done a deal with King Sihanouk that if they, when they take power, he'll be the rightful king. That was a lie. That, that, that didn't happen. And I, I, I can't believe he fell for it, but I don't think he had much choice. 
But when they rolled into Phnom Penh on tanks, they were cheered. People thought, yeah, our liberation. You know, there's going to be a new Cambodia and it's going to be wonderful. And then they said, right, pack your bags, what, whatever you can carry. Don't overdo it. You're empty, em, empty Phnom Penh. I mean, imagine rolling into London in the middle of the 60s and saying, right, everyone's got to move down to Cornwall. And that's what it was like. The, the Phnom Penh was emptied overnight. There's amazing footage of Phnom Penh like a ghost town with like the odd little toddler just walking around because he, he was asleep when they got, you know, and everyone's gone and like a dog just walking along. And he marched them and they marched hundreds of miles. All the old people, many of the old people and children died on the, on the marches. And then they turned up in the countryside and it was like, right, here's your, here's your tools. Start digging. We've got to plant rice. And, uh, mind blowing really to, to think of that now. And this is only what, 40, 50 years ago. That's the thing, isn't it? It's really relatively recently. You sort of think of that sort of situation way back in, in, in history, but it's, um, quite frightening. Have they, have they still got that monument made of the, made of the skulls or the, the, it, it was, I remember it. It was like a, like a pagoda. The top bit was glass. And in that glass, they had, um, skulls stacked up. Yeah. 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 It was still a, there. It was very powerful. But I also remember there was a move to have it taken down as, as they're always, as, as there always is a, is a sort of counter. Counter argument. Tom Sen has been, I mean, I, I obviously don't know what it's like when you were there, but it's been left pretty much uh, as it was. I mean, it's still rooms with shackles and electrical equipment. It's a nightmare in there, isn't it? It's mm. a, a, an awful place to go. And, and the killing fields, which are just out the back there, that, you know, they're, they're, they're not flat. They're all sort of these curvy rolling hills. And they reckon there's millions of people in there just, just who disappeared. And, you know, I used to be a communist. You know, I, I, I can remember after my seven years art school indoctrination, which it was, it was, it was a, my master's degree especially was a communist boot camp, you know, defending Pol Pot and, and, and talking about this stuff as uh, why it didn't, it didn't work because of outside influences or it didn't work because of this. And it didn't work because it was insane. It, it didn't work because it was balmy. That's it. You know, it wasn't thought through. Just insane, isn't it? It's mad. It, it, it's it's utter madness. That tool. I don't want to keep going on such a such a such a dark subject, but that tool slang just you can't believe it. they had they had netting, didn't they, on the balconies because it was so horrific. The the inmates, as, as you might call them, would just seize any opportunity to throw themselves off the balcony to end the. And the torture and the misery and the, and the pain. It's absolutely awful. Mm. I mean, you know, and don't forget, I when I see Jeremy Corbyn a couple of years ago doing his speeches in London, I'm seeing hammer and sickles being waved behind him, and and you know, and, and then BLM at the moment. This is a, 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 a an overtly Marxist organisation that the, the leaders of Black Lives Matter have said they're Marxist. They, they describe themselves as trained Marxists. You've only got to look at the Soviet Union, Cambodia, uh, Mao's China, and you're looking at 300 million people who died of starvation and torture. 
and to see that ideology making ground in the in the West now, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Mm. You know. Yeah, we're in interesting times, aren't we? And I know everyone's got their sort of individual take on it, but it. I'm always talking about the agenda. <laughs> I don't know if I want to talk about it on my hundred podcast, but. I mean, order out of chaos, isn't it? Everyone's been set up against each other. And it's just got to the point of absurdity. The, the, I don't even know what you call it, but, well, the state of play. Does it? I'm not going to, I'm not going to encourage you to get onto the agenda because I don't think you want to on this one. Let's, let's, yeah, let's talk about triads. Yeah, let's talk about drugs. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Friends at home. Chris, I have a triad story, actually, that you might appreciate. I bet it's not as tough as my one. No, not at all. Not even close. It's it's, it's really pathetic, but it's kind of funny. I, I, once I moved to Soho after getting clean in Bury St. Edmunds, um, I hadn't really put enough change. You know, I'd stopped taking drugs, but I hadn't done enough work on myself so that I wasn't still the person that was craving distraction. And I started seeing a lot of masseurs, <laughs> you know, passionate, sensual massages, we should say. And uh, I got, got, got in with the Chinese community of uh, Chinatown and Soho because most of the masseuses around the area are Chinese. And I really got in with them. I, start, I dated one lady and it was really strange because she'd never dated out of a... Uh, you know, out of the Chinese race, and uh, I was invited around her house, and there'd never been a white man in their, her house of twenty Chinese people, and they, I was, you know, they even though they lived in Chinatown, they looked at me like all strangely, and it was almost like they wanted to touch my clothes and things. But um, I got to know her very well, and I, I started talking to her about setting up a massage shop because the money in that game is ridiculous. You know, all, all it is, is you only, need, you only need a lot of empty rooms with a little fan heater, some oil, and a woman who's w- willing to do that work. Uh, you know, we worked out that they could, the, the weekly profit on an average week's business is about 30,000, and it's all in cash. No one's paying for a, a naughty massage with a credit card or a debit card. It's just not happening. And so I said to her, I'm really into doing this and setting up these businesses. And she was, she said to me, well, there is a slight problem. If you try and set up a Chinese massage shop with Chinese girls, you're going to get Chinese businessmen knocking on your door for their cut. And I was like, well, that's all right. I'll, I'll just t- go tell them to go run. And she, she, they didn't call them triad. She called them the Hung family or the Hong family or something like that. But I looked that up on Google and I thought, ah, bollocks, this is coming on top. Anyway, so I said to her, well, all right, I'll, I'll carry on investigating. Yeah, I, sorry, someone in the chat has just said 30 grand. It's a, a running meme on my channel, but it was 30 grand a week. Anyway, um, so I kind of put that um, idea to sleep because I didn't want that asshole. I don't want to get involved. As you know, it doesn't tend to go too well with those sorts of people, especially when you're the white man. You know, I'm not one of them as much as it might have gone well at the start. If anyone's going to take the fall, it'll be me. 
And then about three months later, I'd stopped seeing her as a, a girlfriend. It all, it all ended amicably. You know, we, we didn't fall out or anything. We just wasn't working as a couple. And so I still was a friend of hers and she still come and stayed the night occasionally. And then one day she said, some of my friends want to talk to you. And I thought, oh no, that conversation has already started. Uh, <laughs> in a way, I'd rather it didn't. And, and she said, they want you to be the businessman because you're, you're an Englishman. It looks better. It works better with you behind the jump and all that, dealing with the council and all that. You know, they're struggling to get more massage shops because the Chinese have got too many, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, well, look, I'll talk to them because I'm an idiot and I quite like drama, but I can't promise anything. And then one day I get a phone call and I text to meet in this hotel and to mention this, this name. I can't remember what it was uh, on at the reception downstairs. I go to this hotel, beautiful hotel, you know, just up in the north end of Soho. Absolutely. You know, this is five star and then some. Um, I, I tell them this bloke's name and, and they, she says, okay, we'll escort you up. And so this other man comes along and it's not, they're not treating me like a customer. This is business. I can tell. I, they're, they're not like, hello, sir. Would you like a drink? No, none of that. Come with me. And I was like, oh, fuck, where am I going? I go upstairs. I'm taken into this room. And I'm in this room on my own, and it's a huge room. These things must be five grand a night, you know, view all over London, you know, about the 20th floor. And then after about five minutes, oh, and there's, there's like, there's, there's drinks. There's a, like an open free bar just on the side. So I pour myself a little gin and tonic and pop some ice in it. And I think, well, hang on a minute. This is the life. I might, I might say yes after all, you know, and that's what they're doing all this for, obviously. And then these four women come in. And I have a touch of yellow fever anyway, but man, they were all done up in traditional Chinese garb. You know that Chinese dress? Of course you do. Uh, the sticks through their hair, all perfect makeup. They were all about 5'10", 5'11", very tall for Oriental women. Heels, the works. They've all come in and they're all sitting opposite me, hands on their knees, legs crossed, not saying anything. And I thought, hang on a minute. Is this the best livener I've ever been offered? I was thinking, is this, is this going to go where I think it is? Are we all going to have a drink? And you know, I'm thinking that this is like a little, like a little, little sweetener, right? I'm, unfortunately, that that fantasy didn't last long because then the the blokes came in, and they were they were serious uh, Chinese men, shaved heads, Italian suits. I'm not a fan of Italian suits, but I can spot my mile off. They all sat down, a few hands were shaken, and, and, and they offered me the deal. And it was they wanted me to be the boss. They were going to fund it. They were going to launder everything. And uh, that was the deal. And I, I, I said to them after, after the conversation, I said, um, well, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, have I got a choice here? Have, have I got a choice here? Or are they going to just say, no, you're doing it. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen. I thought that. So I thought, the only way I can make sure that I don't get pressured into it is let them know that regardless of any pressure they put on me, I'm going to fuck this up for them. And so I said to them at the end of the explanation of what the offer was, I said, I'd love to do this. I said, I'd love to do this. I, I said, but I've got several active drug problems. I didn't. I was clean as a whistle. But I said, I've got several active drug problems. And my experience with organized crime is that I always fuck it up. I just haven't got the head for it. 
and they they shook my hands. They said, thank you for your honesty. They walked out, the women walked out, and I never heard from them again. Do you keep that bit on your CV to this day? If I, if I get involved in all this crime, I always fuck it up. <laughs> well, it's actually true. I mean, I, I've got some... my my my. I was a petty drug dealer for most of my using because you just have to be to pay for your habit. But um, when I actually got involved in serious organised crime, which I did, I was useless at it. I'm not cut out for that kind of life. I, I'm, I'm a... I'm a writer, I'm a comedian, I'm not a gangster. It might show. I mean, I, this might come as some shock to the viewers, but no, I'm not I'm not hard. <laughs> I'm really not hard <laughs> enough for that anyway. <laughs> in your um in that little intro that we did that that, that I put on, um what the he- you're talking about like two ounces of crystal meth. Am I, did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. That's a huge amount. How many grams is that, roughly? That's going to be 72 grams. Jeez. Hmm. Would you smoke all that yourself? or? It's hard to say. I'll say I mean smoke. That. I mean, obviously, you can, in, you can ingest um, crystal meth many, many different ways. And when I was in Hong Kong, we, sm- we smoked it off silver for like, like, like you would a burn, you know? Um, like uh, that's, uh, heroin. Um, I I I injected it, but not all the time because it's actually not as good. You know, you're actually better off smoking it. I mean, I don't want to. I don't really want to say good to the chat because it's an awful drug and it will take you over. But um, it's hard to say how much I done and how much I shared, how much I lost, or how much was thrown away because I'd never done meth. It was never my thing. I was always about downers. I had, a, I had a period of about eight months on crack, which the crack diaries are about, but that nearly got me killed. I, you know, I had guns put in my mouth. I had people chasing me around the country. I got into hundreds of grand's worth of debt. You know, crack done more damage to my life in six months than heroin did in 20 years. It's an awful, awful drug. Well, they all are. Very, very few redeeming qualities to drugs. But when I was clean, I'd gone to Thailand for the second time. And what happened was, I was in the gym. I used to go to the gym when I was clean. I'd put on some muscle. I was wearing tight t-shirts, all the stuff you do when you've actually got something to show. And I was in the, in the, I wasn't even drinking. I wouldn't even drink a cup of tea in that time. I was so clean, clean, clean. And, um, I've gone over to the gym and I'm in the gym and I'm smashing it. That's the phrase, isn't it? I'm absolutely smashing it. And I've pulled a muscle in my lower back and I'd done that same injury before. When it happened in England, I couldn't move without being in agony. I'd been, I got taken to the hospital in an ambulance. They gave me tramadol and Valium because people don't know, but diazepam, Valium, sorry, Valium's the brand name. Diazepam is the drug is a muscle relaxant as well as a, a psychological relaxant. And I remember being on the phone to my NA sponsor. Can I take this? He said, yeah, but give the take homes to your mother because I lived at home and tell her no more than it says on the packet. And she's got to sleep with them under her pillow because I would have had them for sure. And so when it happened before, I had four days of prescription, two or three a day. They were actually quite nice when I was clean because they were drugs and my body responds well to them. But I didn't have more than I was scripted. It was all fine. I only had a take home of about 12 of each, four days later, I stopped them. When it happened in the same injury in Thailand, I was carried out of the gym 
carried upstairs in my hotel, which luckily was just across the road. And I said to the woman who owned the hotel, who I was friends with by this time, I said, go to the chemist and get me one tramadol, one diazepam. She come back with one blister pack of tramadol and one blister pack of diazepam. And my head, my, I just, it just lit up. I just thought, well, you're, you're, you're in pain. You know, of course you can, you'll be all right. You've done it before. I was like, just put them down. And I promise you, Chris, I had one tramadol, one Valium. I promise you, one of each. I came round. I don't know whether it was one week, two weeks or three weeks. Honestly, later, the same woman, tick her name was, she's in the novel, who, who gave me the drugs in the first place, the pills, shaking me, right? I came round with her shaking me. And she was going, enough, this has got to stop. You're killing yourself. And I, as she was shaking me, I'm looking around the room. There's lady boys, there's prostitutes, there's street people, there's drugs everywhere. There's a big pile of shards, uh, meth on the little table on the side of the bed. There's crack, uh, little, uh, meth water pipes. You know, they're quite sort of finicky, these little weird designs everywhere. There's, there's, uh, there's lines of Viagra. I know it's Viagra because it's got the little per the little turquoise skin in the lines. There's a cigar in the ashtray. I've had a fucking suit made, a linen suit. I mean, I always say, what kind of a relapse was this? I've got a linen suit and a cigar. Ah, oh, methamphetamine. Lovely. Um, she's chucked all these people out. There's three televisions in my room and they're all playing uh, this one Thai sexy lady channel. And I'm just like, oh, where did they come from? There's broken glass everywhere. It's just, it's, it's what you'd expect of a few weeks meth binge. There's also a Glock on the sideboard. There's a, I've got a shooter. And of course, the horror, because I was clean and I'd had four years clean and it was a real thing for me. I hadn't been clean since I was about 15 and I was now 35 and it had happened again. I didn't know how to, I, I, you know what? I pieced what happened back through text messages, photos on my phone, things people told me. And as as I sort of cleared my head over the next week, slowly things that I'd done come back and, you know, and I managed to finally build up a picture of what happened. And that two ounces of meth I'd bought up on a hill somewhere and and I, I thought they were going to rob me. I'd already given them the money for it. My bank account was 40 grand lower than it was. 40,000 English pounds I'd spent. So so yeah who knows where that went meth probably but i'm not going to smoke 40 grams worth of meth i was probably just playing charlie big potatoes and yeah girls you'll be all right and um that's where the gun come from because they i i was i'd been around there i hadn't any, had any meth for that day i was on i was eating handfuls of benzos to deal with the come down and of course i was about to pass out and i was like where's my fucking meth and i was convinced they were going to rob me the geezer said let's go outside and shoot my gun and I've gone, yeah, let's have a look. And as soon as he give it to me, I've checked it was loaded and went, where's my fucking money? <laughs> and just let a few off. And they they give me the meth and it was that two ounces. And I stuck it up the old prison suitcase and uh, got home. What yeah, is it about meth, right, over every other substance that fucking weird shit happens? I'm not just talking about the psychosis now. Just... I used to get in this situation in Hong Kong where, oh, I don't know how to describe it. It was almost like 
Groundhog Day would would come around and I would be trying to do something and I couldn't do it. And everything that could go wrong got chucked into that equation. And every bizarreness just was chucked into that equation. And still to this day, there were things that I couldn't tell you how they happened. Just could not tell you. Bizarre, you know. I'm not. I'm not sure if it's the drug meth because it also happens with crack. I think what it is is you don't sleep, and once you don't sleep, you start losing the ability to interpret reality in a way that's going to serve you. You know, I can remember on crack not sleeping. You know, you'd grab a couple of hours here and there because you just flake out, but you know. Eight, nine days with no real sleep, an hour here and there. And hallucinating in ways that I never did on acid. Acid hallucinations, they're actual real things, but they're changing. So, you know, the, the patterns on the wall start looking like cogs or, or, you know, there's a paisley pattern on your orange. But on crack from not sleeping, I saw dwarves in the garden. And like my, my girlfriend once said to me, we used to have these two white rats. And she's one of them was called Elroy, and he was on the top of the, the back of the seat. And she went, look at Elroy. She went, he's got a little top hat on, and he's got human legs. And when I looked at him, it took about two seconds, and he had, it looked like a pair of like a Barbie doll's legs sticking out and a little top hat, and he had a, one of those cigarette holders on the go. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem too good. <laughs> but I, that's not an effect of crack. It's an effect of not sleeping five, six, seven days. And I think, I think that's what meth's like as well. You know, you 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 you're mad. It's, it's madness. Yes. Have you ever had the psychosis that I experience? Have you ever got that? I don't know what it is. I I don't know if it's sleep deprivation. I'm guessing. I've been told different things. I have a lot of people try and tell me that I was overcome by um, gins. You're in Cambodia, you're not a djinn is, right? You know, a, yeah, a, a ghoul, a demon. And I think, well, well, technically you kind of are because you've gone to the dark side. So, yeah, you could easily argue the devil's sort of having his way with, with, having his way with your mind. But it, I'm sure in scientific terms, it's, it's just more that the chemical gets so strong in your system, your brain just starts firing off in a, in a way that it's... It's not supposed to, and you begin interpreting things and trying to make sense of things in a very obscure, bizarre, ra- random, random way. Have you ever had that, Chris? Yeah, for sure. I think you mentioned something on my stream the other day about, um, oh, what was it you were saying to, to get this right about something meant something. I can't remember exactly what you were saying, but what, but the human brain will look for patterns. When we're healthy, it will look for patterns. And, and, and that's what it does anyway to make, to make sense of the world. And when I've had, uh, crack psychosis, you'll, you'll make patterns that aren't there. You'll make connections that don't exist to, to try and make sense of a reality, which is essentially falling apart around you. You know, anyone who's spent any long time smoking crack will know about the FBI ad sailing down the outside of your building. Everyone's had that. Because it's, it's a normal fear. If you're taking drugs, there's a, there's a fear of the law. That's, you know, even if you smoke a joint, there's, it's always kind of with you. This is illegal. 
And what starts off with this is illegal, after six hours sleep in three weeks, when you hear a little squeak outside, you say, you turn to your girlfriend, they're coming, they're coming, turn the lights off. Tomorrow we're going to paint the windows black. Because you, you honestly think the police are abseiling. You hear an helicopter, that's for you. Get under the bed, they're probably going to start shooting in a minute. You know, I can remember my missus in that flat when we were going through all that crack madness. We had one of those intercoms. So people downstairs, you open the phone and you, hello, yeah, all right, you let them in. Well, she'd got hold of that, right? And she could hear, when you pick that phone up and there was no one here, there'd be crackles on it, much like we're experiencing on this stream. And it would just be going, right? And she'd be there for hours. I mean hours. And every time I said, come on, love, put that thing down. She'd go, no, wait. Tony, who was our landlord, the Scousers, who were our dealers, and then she'd be naming people from our long back past. Everyone we'd ripped off, done over or whatever. And she said, they're all outside. And I took it off, went, there's no one there. And I'd put it, and then, of course, slowly, I'd start hearing just little bits. Yeah, Chris and, Chris and Gail. No, well, wait till they come out. And I was like, shit, what are we going to do? And she said, well, they're all out there. This is Totnes. It's a beautiful little hippie paradise in the southwest of England. Mate, and I said, it, it's about 20 miles that way. Well, you know it well, right? I live right at the top of the hill, just up there opposite the, uh, the castle boozer. And I, and I, I, I can now hear all this, you know, and I'm like, shit, okay. So I hung it up. I said, right, there's only one way to stop this from terrifying us and ruin our lives. I'm going to go down there and sort it out. I picked up a meat cleaver. I've got no top on. I've got a pair of pants on. I'm pissing with sweat because of the crack. I have another quick pipe. That'll help. That's what I need to get the bottle up. That'll fix, that'll fix everything. All you need in life is another one of those things. Another hit. And I've opened my door. I've marched downstairs. And in my head, I'm thinking, just open it and just start hacking. Because they're going to kill you otherwise. I'd rather go to prison for mass murder than get a kick in from everyone in my past who I owe money to. <laughs> I've got to the door and I'm like, I've yanked it open. I've lifted up this cleaver. It's Totnes High Street on like 8 o'clock Tuesday morning. A couple of old biddies sort of walked past, didn't even notice me. And I've just sort of, Ah, okay. <laughs> and yeah, and, and that kind of stuff happens all the time. It, your life is about that. And on top of that, you've got people ringing you up to go and serve them drugs. So you now got to go out and sit in cars and, and then start accusing them of talking about you. And then when they get on their phone, you go, why are you talking to the fucking police? I'm trying to sort you out here. What, what, what police? Oh yeah. What police? <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. Awful. My God. So, how much does a rock of crack cost in in the UK? I'm I'm I'm, I'm guessing it's a tenner, is it? Point point one is a tenner, yeah, yeah. Because I was down there in South America. Uh, where was it? This was like when you're around like Guyana, so Georgetown, French Guiana. It's rife down there, you know. Um. There's, it's just crack is everywhere. Well, I went to Margarita Island in Venezuela. Um, when was that? So about 20 years ago. And, uh, a, a point one of crack there was a quid, was one, one dollar. Yeah. That's, that's what I was getting to. It was like 50 bloody P down there for a rock. Yeah. 
And I'd never really done any of that in the UK. It just wasn't... In fact, to be honest, I used to just go down on the dance scene, used to pop a pill and have a dab of speed, and that was you for the weekend. It was great, you know. Yeah. Go home and chill out, smoke a few joints with your mates, put some nice music on. It was it was a really good time. It wasn't until... It wasn't until Hong Kong, really, that the whole kind of addiction thing... You know, I found out what it was really through crystal meth, which if there's ever like one drug drug for a person, whatever it might be, that was the one for me. You know, it was just like the key in the lock, the key in the lock for me, really. But, um, but, and even throughout the whole of that, like dancing, Chris, I only ever had a few lines of coke when, when I, I mean, it's not the sort of stuff that people people throw around, right? Especially, it's so expensive in this country. So I'd only done a few lines over over the years. Nothing massive. I think someone gave me a cigarette that he'd he'd refilled the tobacco in it, and he'd late, you know, laced it with with coke, and he gave me this in a in a club once or something. But then when I was down there, and um, I just you you just bump in. It's almost it almost. In the way that in the 90s in the UK, everybody smoked. It seemed like everyone smoked dope. Certainly everybody I knew did, right? In South America, it's almost like everyone can just, everyone smokes crack. <laughs> or, or at least can, you know, literally just turn to someone on the street and go. And they're like, yeah. yeah. And you disappear 30 seconds later, they got you 10 rocks and you're paying five quid at and I, I just did a load for, it's just for the sake of doing it, really. I, w- I would never say, I don't even think it was nice. It's certainly a bit exciting, or at least the initial thing was. But after you've, you know, after you've done one, you just sort of have another beer and then you just light another one up trying to, I don't want to emulate this, but you just want to like keep, and it, it just it just turns into a shit show for me, really. Um, no, it's awful. It's an awful drug, and you're exactly right. That first one, intense as hell, mind blowing, but it, it it that until you have a break, it's never like that again. That's horrible, horrible stuff. Yeah, my gosh. You know this this bracket drugs has got so many very different items in it. You know, like you say, a, a couple of pills and a, a dance is almost harmless. And, and in that same bracket, you've got crack and meth and heroin, and they're nothing to do with ecstasy. They're not, they're, they're, there's no similarity at all. Well, they're illegal, I suppose. But no, awful. Mm. And, this, and, and, you know, this is the problem that the government is having when they sort of talk about drugs. They lied to me about hashish. They lied to me about that because I used to do that and I, I was doing well at college. I was working. I was, everything was great and I'd, I'd smoke weed every day. They lied to me about acid. They lied to me about ecstasy. They did. And so when it came to heroin, I thought, well, I don't trust these bastards, what they're saying. And they hadn't lied to me about that one, it turned out. But you know, <laughs> I think, I think they really need to be a little bit more honest. I really think it would help. And they're not, they're liars. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, everything in life is a lie, isn't it? Everything you've ever been taught is is a lie. Is, your, your diet's a lie. Your, 
history is a lie, medical industry is a lie, TV, you know, the media is a lie. It's it goes on and on. Um, Chris, can you do us a favour? I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna hand over to your good self, my podcast to host, because I need to go and um, I've got a bear attacking my car, and I'm gonna go and fuck it up. So <laughs> you need, I'll, I'll, you I'll, need I'll, a piss. <laughs> shh. Hey. You don't get this on the Joe Rogan show. There you go. <laughs> How amazing that I also need a wee. I won't go now, though. I won't leave you. Yes. Here we go, people. Scrubs rising. Takeover time. <laughs> I would say, though, look, this is important because I know there's people in here who don't watch my channel and I get accused of glamorizing drug use and that if I do ever do that, that's an accident because it's useless, absolute waste of everyone's time. And 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 the thing, things like heroin and crack, however tough you are, however strong you are, they will get hold of you. And and one of the one of the things I've always said that opiates don't really have a drug effect. You know, if you think about acid or ecstasy or even weed, there is a there is a definite effect. Oh, this this feels like this feels like hashish or this feels like acid. You know, you can describe it and you can talk about it. But heroin doesn't have a drug effect. It's a painkiller. And it, and the, and the weird thing about opiates is they will kill both physical and emotional pain. Now I know people that tried heroin with me in the early days of my habit and they were like, no, nah, it does nothing for me. Nothing. And that was because they weren't in pain. They weren't carrying trauma. But all the people who'd done it and said, oh, I really like that, I'd be like, yeah, you're in trouble. You're in real trouble. Because if you like something like that, it's because you've got tr unresolved traumas and you, you're in pain. And, yeah, you need to avoid that. Um, Chris, I've got a bear in the back room and he's tearing up my... Uh, Bed, my mattress. Fucking bastard. Go and get him. Two minutes. Yes. Hello, everybody. My name's Chris. I've got a podcast. Half a podcast at the minute. No, what a great, what, what a great guest, eh? I don't need to say that to half of you because you're, you're already following, um, following Chris's show, but, um, yeah, it, it's funny, isn't it? Life experience is funny, isn't it? That it, I feel like I've had quite a lot of it. Good, bad, ugly, brilliant, beautiful, all across the board, but I wouldn't change any, any of it for, um, I wouldn't change any of it for the world. But then, oh, Andy McNad in Northern Ireland. No, I didn't, history bro. I don't know. Unless that's an Andy McNab uh, reference. My two favourite Chrises are oh, Marzipan. That's kind of you to say. Which Chris are you? I have no idea. <laughs> I 
Mate, we need to sort this bear problem out. It's uh, what eat what eats bears? T Tyrannosauruses or something? It was a doddle, mate. Just bash to the throat, bang, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Chris, I was uh, I was talking to my stream the other day. There's a great movie actually called Grizzly Project, and there's this Canadian sort of redneck. I, I don't mean that as a pejorative. It's just what he is. And, uh, he, he got attacked by a bear, but survived it. And he, and he, and he couldn't really let go of that experience. So he, he, he dedicates his life to building a suit with which he can fight a grizzly bear. He wants to go back out into those bushes in this suit. And it goes through loads of different sort of versions, spends all his money on it, really. And we're talking like hundreds of thousands of pounds. All his time, you know, his family kind of end up estranged from him because he's obsessed. He puts on different versions of it and they swing logs from trees at him. He's got mates hitting him with baseball bats. And uh, when he finally gets there after about eight years, he's got the final version. And it looks like a weird sort of sci-fi thing. It's red and white. It's got a camera on the shoulder. It's got this like single sort of cycloid visor sort of thing. And um, he goes out to fight this bear. This, you know, it's, it's finally happened. The day of judgment. He's going to go and fight this bear. But it turns out he never designed it to walk on anything but flat because he designed it in his garden. And when they get to the grass and it's like that, he can't get up there. <laughs> That's the end of the movie. <laughs> I really read anyone who's into sort of quirky documentaries. It's on YouTube, actually. Grizzly Project. It's amazing. So, yeah, sorry. That's what we need to do. I'll bet a chip in a grizzly story, isn't I? So, uh, where do we start? Yes, there was actually a movie called Grizzly. And when we were kids, so we were, I was probably six and my sister was seven. Might have been a bit older, I don't know. We went to watch, I think it was Superman or some such childish film. And the queue was around the block. And then I think someone from the cinema came out and they made a, they made a cutoff point in the queue and went, sorry, you have to go and watch something else, right? So our dad in his wisdom took me and my sister and we're children into see Grizzly. I don't know how we got in and I'm not trying to like make some bullshit up now. Seriously, I have no idea because when you watch that film now, well, now it would probably be like a 15. But back then, in the 70s, uh, it would have been an, eight, an 18, right? So we're in this film watching this um, film, Grizzly. <laughs> and suddenly this, this bear starts tearing. And it's done along exactly the same lines as Jaws. So all that suspense, that build up. There's something fucking big and nasty there. You you can't see it yet, but it's locked and loaded, and it's it's coming your way. Do you know what I mean? So the first scene is some, you know, two girls camping in the woods, and they've got their cooker on and their bloody frazzling marshmallows and all that. Next thing, this big furry bastard comes out of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> and literally rips them to shreds and it was all quite 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 graphic right um how old were you 
I would like to say, mate, I was, I was, I'm going to say six, I was six and my, my <laughs> sister was seven. At, at the maximum, just to, just to give a window here, I couldn't have been more than nine. Uh, my sister couldn't have been more than nine and I couldn't have been more than eight because that's when my parents <laughs> really started fucking around and we didn't even live in that place and, and any longer we we added that to about the 16 other places that we we lived as kids um so there we are and it was you know we're just like that in the cinema watching this grisly <laughs> grisly attack lots of young people i don't know if that's going to be particularly traumatic because we were young but like there's a, a boy hunting in the woods with his dad and he's got his little you know um what do they call them there's a name for a for a Oh, there's a name for like a mini shotgun. I think they call it a garden gun, right? So he's got his little shotgun and, and his dad's gone off this way and a little bo- What happens? Yeah, you, you, you've got the plot now, right? You can guess the, like, what's going to happen. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it on Wikipedia. It's got the most amazing advert. You probably remember it. The bear's at the top like this going, ah! <laughs> and there's like a woman at the bottom, tiny, and it says, grizzly. <laughs> oh, amazing 1976 uh, that, that I came feel, out I feel validated now Chris like I'm not talking absolute shit you like, it is that actually great. it is a thing what, 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 what year was it? 76 but that that was probably US release so. yeah so I would have been 5 I was 5 wow. in 76 <laughs> and like I say honestly I'm not bullshitting I don't know how we got in to see that film other than the fact things were a bit different then and that everything was quite quite violent in my in, from my memory in the 70s <laughs> um that evening we went to bed and i was too terrified to sleep i was just too terrified so i crept out on the on the landing and there's my sister she's too terrified to sleep so we just sat there together Talking about this bear, <laughs> which was all, it was all, it was all so real. Um, so yeah, there you go. There's a. No, I, I can totally identify with that. I mean, we used to watch our parents or friends' parents' horror movies as kids because I was the VHS age. And, you know, you'd all sit around there as, as like kids acting hard going, no, this is nothing. And then, no, I wouldn't be sleeping. They terrorised me, those movies. Absolutely awful. Couldn't sleep. I'm, I lived on a... I didn't live. I slept on a bunk bed. Like, we had... My house was a two-up, two-down. So, my mum and dad in one room, me and my brother in the other. Me and my brother didn't get really on as kids, which isn't ideal when you're living... Sharing a room in a bunk bed. And I used to be convinced he was going to stick a spear through the bottom and it would come up through me. And I used to sleep for about six months. It probably wasn't. It was probably about a week after the watching Friday the 13th where something similar happened. But my memory is it went on forever. I'd sleep right up against the wall, you know, just thinking if that spear comes through. Nah, te- awful, really. I mean, different times, though. You say that they let you in in the 70s. Why wouldn't they? My mate's auntie, she was one of those sort of eccentric aunties who was very artistic, no boundaries. And my mate, who was my, who's my age now, always has been my age, obviously, you know, he used to come to school and he'd say that his auntie had taken him up Soho and gone in the pornos, uh, cinemas with him, you know, and just like, oh, it's time you learned about the birds and the bees, Jason. And they'd just be sitting there thinking, what the fuck is this with my auntie, you know? 
But there would be no problem then getting kids into cinemas. If you had the money, you'd be fine. <laughs> Chris, have you been ripped off on your travels? Have you had many run-ins on, with, um, uh, well, with crime, with criminals? Have, has anyone robbed you or ripped you off or conned you? I've had I've had crappy little cons where I bought I bought gear and it wasn't, but nothing substantial. No, nothing at all. That is been one, very lucky. That should be one of the biggest crimes against humanity, shouldn't it? When you buy gear, you get it back to your room and you're like, uh, and it's fucking sherbet or something. Especially, I mean, in in Soho, uh, last time I was there, you've got these blokes called vultures. They're known as vultures, and what they'll do is they'll 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 loiter around where the dealers are loitering. They'll see you scoring. And because you want to go off-road to get back to your house, you don't want to be going down the roads where the old Bill might see you, especially if you're homeless because you look the part. So you tend to take alleys and they'll just mug you in the alley. They'll just grab hold of your blade to your neck, share that with me then. And I think robbing homeless junkies for their gear is lower, as low as it gets, you know, absolutely awful. Because with that particular drug, you're in trouble. You're you're withdrawing. You, you're you know you're you're in real trouble. How how many how much begging is it going to take you to get that tenor together? And these little shits, you know, they just they're just robbing very vulnerable people. I can beat that. Um, not not that I really want to, but uh, and it's in Cambodia actually. When I was there, I stayed in some decadent old kind of colonial. French building, well, a lot of the city centres like that. Is it? Is it still yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, loads of it. Lovely. Very, very beautiful white sort of buildings with lots of spindly stuff on and balconies and and um, I don't know how I bought your bar, but I did. Oh dear! Some motorbike courier come round and he's got this pill, and it was still wet, Chris. It was still red from the. The press, you know, where they, where they press them, it, it, in my hand, the, the, the dye come off. It made me wonder. It was almost like maybe they printed, printed one on demand for me or something, right? <laughs> but the next night, I tried to get another one. And the guy went, no, don't have. I said, well, can you get any, I said, can you get any coke? And like I said, I've never been big on, I've never been massive. It's never my thing, but. I just always had that personality that I'll try, I'd rather try anything than be straight, right? So the guy goes, yeah, 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 I can get you some cocaine. And he went away, he came back half an hour later, pulled up on his bike and he's handing out this little baggie. And I took it and I, I pay for it as you do. And, um, it was only because I'd lived in Hong Kong. That I knew immediately this wasn't coke, it was heroin, it was China white. Happens all the time out here. Yeah. And then in recent years, because this, we're talking folks that are listening, this is about, 50, well, 2003, so what, however long ago that was, what, 17 years ago. Um, but fairly recently here in the Southwest, we had two lads that were traveling through Cambodia. And they, the same thing was done to them. Yep. And they'd obviously snorted a massive great line thinking it was Charlie. And of course it wasn't. And, um, they were both found dead, dead in their room in the morning. 
it happens out there all the time because weirdly, China white has always meant number four heroin. In in the West, it tends to be number three. It's the very crude diamorph diacetylmorphine base. But Asian heroin is white. It's gone through another um, refinement process. It knocks the socks off that silly brown stuff. You don't need citric acid to or cook it up or or heat. Put it in cold water. Job's done. But in England, people refer to quality cocaine as China white, which is just a bizarre mistake. So I think what happens is you're you're going to be so hard pressed to get cocaine in Asia. Unless you're in a group of people who, who've got contact with people who do it. Because there's not a market here. People can't afford 60, 70 pound a gram or 80, 90 dollars. It's just not the market. But yeah, people come over here, China white or whatever they ask for. You, you know, heroin's so rife out here. People will just give you that. What you just said is so frequent out there, out here. They're continually finding stiffs in the morning who snorted heroin. Mm. Awful, awful. It was weird because in Hong Kong, I mean, it's un under British rule, obviously, when I was there. Not that I don't know how that has any bearing on what I'm going to say, but the cocaine there was something completely different to what you buy in England, right? For a start, it was sticky. It was like toffee. If you tried to, like, chop a line, you had to really, it was a bit of a fuck around, you know? Whereas here it's this like sherbety stuff. It's 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 like speed or something. You know, it's got that same consistency. It's pow powdery, right? And um, and yeah, it for some reason in Hong Kong, you could just buy all all the best. Well, obviously China white. Not not not. I'm not recommending to any. <laughs> this is not a recommending recommendation to anyone listening i'm just talking about my history now but you could you got this china white which was it's really good heroin chris right yeah but then you could also buy coke and it was so strong like really well because you've got the market hong kong's full of rich people you know rich people going out clubbing it's got that kind of culture hasn't it but what phnom pen <laughs> yeah <laughs> I guess also Hong Kong's got the shipping, isn't it? Anything can come in in one of those containers and, and obviously does because it's not like it's, I mean, when they talk about the Golden Triangle, yeah, I mean, Hong Kong is in that region, but cocaine isn't coming from that part of the world, is it? It's coming from South America. So, um, yeah, I guess that's the, that's the triads again, taking care of, taking Being care busy. of, yeah. It's crazy money. You know, when I was in Margarita Island, we were doing a bit of work there. And it, this was what? Um, let me just get this right. So about 20 years ago, 20, just, just on, say, just turning the cent, turn of the century. We were talk, they were talking about a kilo. They get it through Venezuela. That's all paid up. And they'll take the risk in the UK. They haven't got them paid up. Uh, you, you do your sample in, in a hotel room. You get on the same plane as them, but you don't have anything to do with them. It's just so that you can see they're not exchanging parcels. So the bit you sampled is what's on the plane. And then you, you catch up with them in Dover. But this was only 20 years ago, and you were still looking at 20 years ago for an ounce of uncut Peruvian cocaine, which it was. You were still looking at 38,000, right? In England, for, for one, to sell that block, um, not stepped on, 38 grand. 
and they were looking at they were telling us um, four and a half grand in in Margarita Island for one. So you're looking at thirty three and a half thousand pound profit on each unit that they are going to take back for you. I mean, look at the markup. And if you're going to sell that in in ounces, that's you know two grand an ounce, and you're going to tread on it and get two ounces out of an ounce, so that's four grand an ounce. And then if you keep breaking that down to grams or whatever, you know, a gram of Peruvian in London at the moment will go for 100 quid. It, the money is insane, especially with that one. Absolutely insane. Gosh. Yes, it is. Have and you that's been... the problem with it. This is, look, this is why you won't get governments and police because they can be paid off with so much money because it's worth it. You know, you can offer a copper, you know, 500 grand. And that's barely going to touch in your profits if you're an importer. And is anyone going to turn that down? You know, I doubt it. No. Have you been to a full moon party, Chris? I have in Thailand. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit old now. <laughs> yeah. They're, Post they're... Samui it was. It was quite a night. Not Copang Yang, no? No, no. I've, I've heard of the Copang Yang. Full moon parties, but never, never had the pleasure. I've never been a raver. I don't like parties. I like talking, and I, I don't like all that noise. You know, give me a nice little members club with low lighting and a pianist any day. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah, I get it. Tell us about stand up, then, mate. Because I, I think when you get into the arts, whether it's writing, whether it's producing videos, what, what, what whatever it is gives you a real appreciation of a part of life that you never got to experience before or I, I certainly didn't and now also I think listen to Joe Rogan a lot because he's really he loves his stand-up comedy doesn't he he loves talking about it and he, he um, um, and he, he, he comes up with all these classic comedians that have come many of them have gone now haven't they like Kinnison and you know, they're no, no, no longer with us. But the one thing I got from that is a real appreciation of the bravery of just getting up on stage and being funny. How, what, how did you get into it? Um, well, as I said, when I come out of rehab, I needed to do something and I'd always told stories. And, you know, at school, I was always chucked on stage, you know, in Robinson Crusoe. I played Robinson in this story about an evacuee called Frank. I got to play Frank. I'm all right talking to groups of people. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not so much now because I've done a lot of work on it. And this came up briefly in our chat the other day. But I used to be I'm more at peace. I used to be more at peace performing than being myself. So for me to walk on stage, yeah, there's some nerves, but for me the nerves are about it going well. I want it to go well. I'm not actually worried about standing up in front of people. You know, I've done a few Edinburgh festivals, and the thing about the Edinburgh Festival, you're competing with hundreds of other shows. And my biggest fear at the Edinburgh Festival was that I'd have five people in my audience. Give me 500, I'll smash it, because it's an event, and there's loads of people, and wow, amazing, they're going to hear my stories. But if there's four people, I'm a little bit like, oh, I ain't got the energy for this. It's hardly worth it. But I do, I, I, even if I don't like a comic, and I don't like most of them, to be fair, 
I do, especially live, I do give them props for going up there and giving it a go because I know for most people it's their greatest fear. The idea of walking on in front of people and, and trying to make them laugh because if they don't, that's brutal. And, and you know, and as a comedian, you, you have to learn stagecraft. And however good you are at telling stories, which I was, uh, admittedly, when I first started, if it goes wrong, you've got to learn how to pull them back. Because if you're up there for 30 minutes or an hour and you lose them in the first couple of seconds, it's a, they're the things you learn through, and they're only the things you can learn through time. Basic stagecraft, you know. Someone said to me something once, uh, <laughs> another gay man actually, I can't remember his name, Scott. Scott, very funny bloke. Do you know any straight men, Chris? <laughs> other, other than me? <laughs> well, you nearly put yourself in it then. Um, I lived in fucking Soho, didn't I? What you, I said I was the only straight in the village. Um, Scott Capuro, very famous uh, American comic. And he said to me very early on in my comedy career, he said, there's only one trick to stand up. Be likable. And he said, if they like you, you can say anything you want and they'll laugh at you. He said, but if they don't like you, they're going to let you know. And the gigs that I had that fell flat, and there were a few, you know, and they're actually a godsend because when you have a bad gig, you actually learn something. When you have a bad gig, you become a better comedian. When you have a good gig, it's good for your ego. Hey, I'm good at this. But you don't become better. You're the same comic that walked in that night. When you have a bad gig, you've got to start thinking, what happened? Where did it go wrong? How do I, how do I make sure that doesn't happen again? But, and, and this, this, this was another reason. This, this is a, another thing that contributed to me giving up comedy. Because however bad your day has been, however shit you feel, and however not very funny you feel, you've got to get up on that stage and be likable and be funny and, and ha 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 ha. And that's quite difficult if you've just uh, paid a, a tax bill, uh, you're, you're, you've been chucked out of your flat, your mate's died, you know, and it's quite difficult. And I, even after sort of six, seven years, I didn't quite develop that professionality to, to before I stepped on stage, leave all that life baggage behind and be a professional comedian and, and be likable. And I'll tell you what, when you, when I've, I have stood on stage at gigs before, 200 people there. And, you know, you'll hear comedians saying, oh, they're a tough crowd. Bullshit. There's no such thing as a tough crowd. These people have come out of their houses, usually paid, and they want to be entertained. They want to laugh. It's all working in your favor. There's no such thing as a bad crowd. There's bad comics. There's bad nights. There's bad performances. There's no bad crowds. It's bullshit. But I've gone on stage before. I've said something, it didn't go down well, then I've got a bit angry, and then I've said something as if to say, well, fuck you, if you ain't into this, why should I fucking try? And then they're all like, ah. Oh. And then someone's gone, nice bloke, thanks for coming. And I've, and, you know, I've bit, and then, I, they, oh, it's awful. And and the weird thing is, you kind of become schizophrenic. There's this outside kind of, it's fight or flight, and you don't want to flight, you want to take them on. But you're meant to be entertaining them. Stop shouting at these people. Stop calling them names, Chris. And there's a bit of me standing back, just my stomach's in agony. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, be, I'm, I'm filling with adrenaline, but there's no, there's no real fight. This is meant to be comedy. And it's awful. It's so bad. And, and many comics will tell you how bad a 
bad gig is. But few will tell you why, and it's and it's and it's really because you were an arsehole. You were an arsehole. That's you, why you failed. Because yeah, you never played in Plymouth, did you? Yeah, I think I've done a couple. There's a big theatre down there. I think I played in. There's a comedy club. I think it's called Comedy Store. It's probably not an original name, but no, um, I've been. I've, I've definitely gigged in Plymouth. I've been all over the country. This is the other thing, actually. When I, I talk about reasons I gave it up, another thing is. Being a being a successful comedian is a shitty life. Now, I'm not talking about Louis C.K. I'm not talking about Chris Rock, Doug Stanhope, even. I'm not talking about very successful because then it's a dream. You know, you've got managers, agents. They sort everything out. You've got a nice tour bus where you've got a big double bed and your missus with you, or or a different girl in every town. You know, when you're that famous, you don't have bad nights because they'll laugh at anything. I've seen people like Doug Stanhope, who is was my favourite comic. He's gone downhill terribly, but you know he's been out for decades. Why, why I've is seen he? Him. Why, sorry, Chris. Why has he gone downhill? Is just well, he, it, it he's been out years. I think he's lost the. You know, when you your first ten years, you're like, wow, look, my dream has come true. But when you've been touring for thirty odd years, and he's an alcoholic, I think he's kind of losing the plot a bit. Um. He also started doing a podcast and he started doing it every day and he got this idea that him and his drunk friends were fun to listen to and it was, I just thought, oh, come on, Doug, this is shit. Anyway, but that's super successful, but that's about 0.0000001% of comics. Your, your actual jobbing comedian, someone who gets on telly occasionally, does a few panel shows here and there, their life consists of this, waking up in a and b not their bedroom, not with their wife or kids or whoever. Most of them are single anyway. Uh, getting a car share with a couple of other comics. Driving up the motorway for four hours to a, to another B&B. Getting sandwiches from a, a, a service station. Going to another bar, having another two beers. Not enough to get drunk because you can't get drunk every night because then you'll be an alky. But just enough to make you miserable. Do another show. Go to another B&B. This is a not, that ain't a great life. And that's most comedians. You're eating at service stations. You're sleeping in bed and breakfasts. You're, you're spending your evenings in bars. Oh, I, I, you know, I've done a few tours. I've done a bit of that and it wasn't fun. So weird, isn't it? It's a desperate life. Being a comedian is a desperate life. And also it's all about ego. You know, there's, there's no excuse. You cannot get away from the basic fact that if you want to spend your life standing in front of people for their adulation, it's an ego-based thing. It's you, you want people to love you. And what you actually need to do is love yourself. And when you get that out of the way, you'll probably stop doing stupid things like stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it, it's a whole, like, I don't know the word, but it's, it's just a whole thing, isn't it? The, the whole culture and history I'm, I'm talking about america now because britain we had like the musicals didn't we and the working men's clubs that's our thing america they had the, the comedy stores and the circuit and and yeah and it it's kind of you're either is it true you're either funny or you're not um, you, you can't if you're not funny, it's hard. It's hard. It's like you you might be able to improve a bit. 
I mean, look at Bill Burr. He's just so natural. He, he, you just talk to the guy. Well, look, when he's in interviews, it just looks like he just talk to the guy. Everything he comes back with is just utterly hilarious. Um, yeah, are people not? I think I think there are people who are. I think natural is a bit unfair because it takes away any effort they've made. You know, someone like Bill Burr, Bill Burr, great comic. I think he's probably always told stories. You know, like I did. I'd done it as my way of making friends. You know, I wasn't hard at school, and there were hard kids, and there was bullying because all kids bully. You you bully someone lower than you, and it goes all the way up. And the hardest kid at school was being bullied by his old man. But but that was my thing. I made jokes. I got the teachers on side by making jokes. I got the hard kids on side. It always worked for me. And I, I, I you know, I, I practiced it through doing it. And I would suggest Bill Burr was, has been much the same throughout his life. Now, there are, this is where the industry gets in the way. I know comedians who've done the same 15 minutes for 10 years. And that's all they do. They turn up somewhere. They do their perfect 15 minutes, which other people have written for them. And, uh, and and they get they get on telly because of that. They turn up on panel shows. You know, panel shows are a lie anyway. When I was a youngster, I'd watch panel shows. And as someone who, you know, even as a youngster, I knew I wanted to be something like that. I didn't really know what a stand-up comedian was, but I knew these people were being funny. And I'd watch them, and I'd watch the host say something, and I'd watch them come back, and it was just gold. And I think, wow, that's an amazing thing to be able to say like that. And then they'd show the pictures and they'd respond to the image and like, these people are geniuses. Of course, panel shows aren't comedy, they're theatre. This is how panel shows work. The, the, the host and all the guests get all the material two or three weeks before. These are the pictures we're going to show you. These are the questions we're going to ask you. This is, this, everything is scripted. So get your answers sorted. Make sure they're funny. Now, some of those panellists, depending on how successful they are, they'll have writers writing for them. They'll have actual funny people looking at that those questions, looking at those pictures and, and writing their jokes for them. The host, Jimmy Carr, for instance, or Alan Carr, one of that crowd, he'll have a team of writers writing his stuff. So all this is rehearsed. Then they'll shoot it for about three hours. That's a three-hour shoot for eight out of ten cats, for instance. And they're going to edit. I mean, what's, a, what's eight out of ten cats? After all the crappy, fake applause and canned laughter, 8 out of 10 cats is probably 20 minutes. So what you actually get is 20 minutes of the absolute gold that has been rehearsed. Sometimes they'll take two or three takes of each bit and you see it and you think, wow, these people are geniuses. No, it's been rehearsed, it's been scripted, it's been edited and, and you know, it's a, it's a lie really. It's nothing to do with stand-up. Nothing to do with comedy. It's this theatre. You get that on the specials as well. Am I right in thinking when you watch a special and you watch the, the video of it, um, it's, you think you're watching one single performance, but in truth, the producer or the editor has picked each different night for maybe six nights, the, the joke that went off the best and the comedian just makes sure he wears the same, that's it, the same shirt. So you can't tell it's a different, the only way to tell is you look at the audience and suddenly there's this blonde girl there and yeah. ne- in the next shot, she's a black geezer. <laughs> You're yeah. like, hang yeah. on, what? something's going now, on here. In fairness, I think Louis C.K. does film a straight hour because he's differently. 
But yeah, most specials are like that. They'll shoot 10 nights. And again, they'll shoot 10 nights, so two hours a night, so 20 hours, and they'll cut that down to 40 minutes stand-up. And you'll think, this geezer is amazing. And they are good, but they're not that good. They're not that good. They're not as good as what they present you. And and there's canned laughter. I made a lot of videos about canned laughter and canned applause. You know, they're telling you when to laugh with that stuff, they're, you know. And when you take it off, it's dire. I, did, I, I made a lot of videos where I removed the laughter and the clapping, and you, it just looks like a fucking episode of Neighbours. So... <laughs> And then, then I put laughter over Man Bites Dog, which is a hideous uh, film. It's a uh, fake documentary of a serial killer. But if you put laughter over it, you start laughing because that's what that stuff does. Laughter is a, a group response. We laugh to show other people we're identifying with it and we want them to know that we're identifying with it. Uh-huh. Oh, you, we lost you there for that last bit. You uh, went into... Wi-Fi land, the Wi-Fi void. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it was no. We got uh, we, uh, we got the bit got the bit about the can can laughter. What about okay? Well, the bit I said was, hang on, hang on. This is important. So I I, I took the canned laughter and the canned applause away from some TV comedy, and it's just dire. It's like an episode of Neighbours. But then I put laughter on Man Bites Dog, which is a fake documentary about a serial killer who goes around shooting people. It's very hard to watch. But I put canned laughter and applause on that, and you laugh. Because laughter is a group response. It's a reflex response that you do to show other people in the social group that you're identifying with what the comedian's saying. So when we hear it, we laugh, even if the image is someone shoot, blowing someone's head off. And that's why, And at the end of it, I said, more lies. <laughs> it's just more lies, more artifice. Well, laughter is contagious, isn't it? So I suppose when you're entertaining an audience, if you can get the bulk of them up chuckling, then that's half the job done, is it not? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what most comedians want is called rolling laughter. And rolling laughter is when you get the crowd to laugh and you the next punchline or the next denouement, the next bit that you want them to laugh, they're still laughing at the last one. And if you can get that rolling laughter... You can actually conduct it like a, like a, like an orchestra. You know, a good comic can conduct that because once you've got it rolling, you can just keep adding to it. And you know, I've done gigs, uh, I've done our gigs at Edinburgh where I've had like 20 minutes of rolling laughter and you have to stop. They can't take it anymore. It's too much <laughs> and it's just bliss. And you say to them, I'm going to stop now while you not get a breath. And people are just like, ah, ah. No, that, that's, a, that's a great feeling. I feel like I've been really slate in stand-up, and I did also love it at one point, but, you know, it ran its course for me. Well, there's two sides to everything, isn't there? Well, there's many sides to everything. You know, it's, um, well, everything. So you name it, there's two sides to it. And the military sure. is a good, great example. You know, there's there's massive things that you're incredibly proud about, and then there's there's some realities that, it's just a bit naff, you know. Chris, can I ask you a question that I meant to ask you the other night? Are you going to pay me? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I'm not, no. Um, then I'm not answering it. All right, I'll, I'll test the water. I reckon right, I'll get well, you look, you're, you're my guest, so I, I, you can ask me five okay. questions. Okay, let's... No, no, one, just, just one. I want to know what 
frontline combat is actually like. All right. Become a mercenary. I thought about it. I've been obsessed with the military all my life. I, this is the mad thing. As a child, I was going to join the military. My dad tried to put me off it. My dad done national service, and to me, that made him a military hero. I, you know, you had to squeeze the stories out of him. He wasn't happy just to tell you. It's fucking but, insane, mate. It's it's beyond anything. So many facets, and there's so many things I can say. It's when you join the military, you are, it's like you're stepping sideways into just an extreme form of life, particularly if you join something like the Marines or the Paras, um, especially if then you go to, to the special forces, right? Uh, it, it's beyond, I mean, obviously I can tell you, I can try to tell you what it's like. Whether I think that in any way can encapsulate the, 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 the sheer extremeness, uniqueness, bizarreness of, 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 um, not even just being in combat, but for example, being in a, an elite force like the Marines. Um, I mean, I mean, what, what, I mean, one silly example, you, you come, I don't know, you can come back off leave, find out two of your, two of your mates just got killed surfing on a train in Thailand. You know, this, this was a, was something that happened while I, while I was, I think I was on ship at the time. Um, two lads, you know, they're on their R and R or on their leave and they decided to go to, to Thailand for a bit of a laugh and they got somehow got up on the roof of the train I think in the press they tried to write it off to oh it's really hot in the carriage so they got on it I think in you know respect to these guys no they went right let's, let's get on the roof and um, train went under a tunnel so they stood no chance right um, you, you have an awful lot of situations like that you lose you regularly lose people that you know because you're a brotherhood in the marines of say 7000 people right it's the size of a small football stadium it, it, you you know you either know the person directly because you've served with them or you train with them or you know them like by proxy because 10 of the guys you work with always talk about this guy right so when it comes it, it, it's quite quite a shocker. Um, the it's it certainly is a case of work hard, play hard, and when you play hard, it's yeah, you 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 take it up a notch, and then you take it up one more again. It's almost in the same way that maybe you and I have done through through experimenting with drugs and willing to, to go that little bit more than most people because we, we needed more. It was the same in the military. You have that same sort of need, but of course it's all, for the most part, done through alcohol. That's the accepted practice. Um, and that can lead to some quite extreme situations. 
But to go back to your original question, the combat is, it's weird. It's just, like I say, I don't know if I could even do it justice. I, because it's so gradual, you know, I never expected to join the Marines. I did it for a bet. Next thing you know, I've done this three-day course that you had to do. It's called the Potential Recruit Course. Now they call it the Potential Royal Marines Course, right? So you get dragged up to Limston, literally put through hell like full metal jacket type shit for three days, except it's it's the hardest basic military infantry course in the world, right? So this three days is like a microcosm of this extreme tough thing that you're going to face should should they accept you. So you get accepted for that. Um, oh, well, you have to pass that and, and the vast majority of people fail. They don't even get past the recruiting office. The vast majority of people, you, you know, maybe 20% get past the recruiting office onto this course. And then off that course of that 20%, 25% get through so it's really quite quite tough in the first place then if you're persistent like I was because you haven't got much to go on to so you hang in there and you you just give it your best right you will pass and then of course you get a date to enter training so the next thing you know you're rocking up at Limston with your, your suitcase and your stupid fucking tie from top man right? <laughs> the, the, the drill instructor says you're right fellas just don't try and march you'll look like a bunch of fucking idiots you know so it's like oh, all right and so you gradually even though it's a series of like little tough tests you gradually progress into this lifestyle so before you know it you're in there you've got the shaved head you're talking a language that you you, you hear the people talking and that you you actually get instructed and you'll hear this word and you'll hear this word and doby, that means to do your washing. Doby dust, that's your washing powder. Civvies is obviously self, self-explanatory and that there's a, you know, there's a, obviously a certain indoctrination there with respect to distancing yourself from your, your former life. Um, we could get quite serious on that, that indoctrination thing with what we talked about Cambodia, right? But, I mean, it's war. It's it's harsh. It's it's obviously, let's just say, with our human intelligence, unnecessary. Therefore, by definition, they have to put you through this machine to get you to to become this professional soldier, aka vicious killer machine, right? You know, it should be should the case, you know, for war present itself. So what I'm trying to say, Chris, is it's not, before you know it, you're in there. You're wearing a green berry of a Royal Marines commando. You, it's a, it's a big thing, you know, you're very proud, very proud. It becomes you when your mates are all going off to college to do electrical engineering and they're living in a bedroom in their mum's, mum and dad's house. You're out there earning five times more money than them. Um, you're part of this elite military unit of very focused, trained professionals in one of the most prestigious jobs in the UK, 
this I'm just talking like how it was in your head at the time, you know, in hindsight, no, it makes, it makes obviously, I, sense. you know, in hindsight, I can look back and tell you a load of fucking shit about British forces. <laughs> right. And I, I know you, 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 you know, know yourself as to your subs and my subs. But so when I was in training, I wanted to go to combat straight away for the simple reason. I didn't want to miss, miss out. We might go to war. We might not. There was a big kind of after the Falklands and between what happened in the Middle East, there was sort of a um, you know, 10, 10 year gap and I was I joined in that gap. So the best way to ensure you saw active service was to go to a unit that went to Northern Ireland. Um, so I opted for 4-2 commando. It wasn't a tough decision to make um, for the sort of... Um, domestic side of things because it's in the southwest so it's where i grew up where all my friends were so if effectively i could have left gone to live like with my old man and, and re, re, um commuted from there which i did I, I i did for a while and that's it it's it's i chose 4-2 commando because i knew they were going out to the northern Ireland conflict um as I said, if I'm going to do my time in the military, I want I want to go and fight. Right? That's what that's how you feel when you're young and you're driven by your ego and you're full of testosterone and it's you want to you just want to get stuck in, right? So you do all the training, and of course, when you're doing the training, you want you got one degree of detachment because it's not real. At the end of the day, it's training. You've done loads. Of, you've just done eight months of the hardest training in the world. This isn't a, a sort of extension of that, but the difference being is you're guaranteed to go somewhere at the end of this. They call it build up, right? There's probably a, a few names for it, but like build up. And used to do a lot of shooting on the ranges. Uh, you had to know how to be able to shove up um, a cannula in someone's arm if they needed a drip or your first aid. Your shooting had to be top notch. You're shooting from um moving vehicles or you're shooting at moving targets, all this sort of stuff. They give you a conversion kit for your SA80, or that's what the rifle we had back then. So it's 5.56, so very capable of, of killing someone, no problem. But they you put a little conversion kit in it and then you fire two two rounds, which are still lethal, but if you're wearing a flat jacket, it's you're probably hardly even going to feel a 2-2, whereas a 5.56 is going to knock you for six, right? And then you patrol through this mock-up village. It was up in Kent, and all kind of stuff's going up, a bit like you see you know, in the movies. Targets are popping up, and you've got to engage them and, and this kind of thing. And a funny thing happened in that village when we are doing that training is a shooter started shooting, so a sniper. We could hear the rounds going off. Everyone, the first thing you do, cock your weapon, so you make ready, or your your brick commander, your court will shout, make ready! By which time you've already done it because you're all drilled to this, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, you run for cover. First thing you do, you don't want to be exposed. You want to find a firing position. You want to start returning the rounds to um, whoever, you know, whoever's shooting at you. 
Well, I got in a firing position and I felt a tap on my shoulder and I looked up and it was the overseer of the exercise, like an adjudicator, you know, or an overseer. Yeah. I don't know what, can't remember what, what we used to call them. And he's going, and he pointed and I looked over and my mate Jock was spark out on the floor. And my first thought was, oh, oh, he's just, he's just like in the old days in the cowboy films, people just hit the deck. You know, it's, it's not a fire, it's not a, it's not a firing position because you've got no cover, but in the movies, people just hit the deck, right? So I thought, oh, <laughs> well, he's quite, he's confident in his own ability. He's just hit the deck. And then the guy tapped me again and I'm, I'm looked up and he went, he's been hit. Oh, <laughs> that's why he's lying spark out on the floor, right? So then, of course, you got, I was the first, I was a first aid train. I was the first aider in our four man team. So I run out, you know, have to grab the guy, fireman's carry him into cover, put a tourniquet on or what, you know, whatever. If he's bleeding from the leg, it's a tourniquet. If he's, if he's, if it's a sucking chest wound, you've got to cover it with, with plastic, this kind of stuff, right? Anyway, fast forward to the actual tour of duty, and it's weird. The very, oh Chris, I could I could talk for hours. I, I try and condense it. You get picked up at the airport, having flown over there in either a TriStar or a Hercules, right? So it's all kind of, you know, again like the war films. You sat there with your rifle between you, uh, between your legs, lined out on this helicopter. You know, this airplane designed to drop paratroopers or carry heavy loads and they, they drop you off in the, you know, you, for civilian, I don't know. I was going to say in the war zone, but it really was a war, Chris. You know, there's no, we were there for the 20th anniversary of British troops in the province. The IRA were out to do all they could to kill as many British servicemen. You know, it's the 20th anniversary. They want you to fuck off. Um, they're going to make a name for themselves, right? So we're driving from the airport to our barracks, which is probably, let's just say, a 20-mile trip. And as we come into the edge of the Belfast city itself, so it's probably north or west Belfast, I'm at the back of, it's called a pig, this armoured vehicle. I'm at the back, and I'd lifted up the little slit. There's a slit like that big. And I lifted it up just to, you know, you know, like, like you are on an aeroplane when you come into land, you want to look at this place <laughs> where this alien landscape you found yourself. And we're driving down a main street in Belfast and we went past a pub and I'm looking at my slit and as if on cue, everybody outside that pub, right, just dropped their pints, ran over, picked up rocks in the street. Just wow. started throwing them at our vehicle. And of course, I'm the only one that, well, the drivers obviously could see it, but, but we're in the back. It's like an enclosed space. I'm, I, I, I'm the only guy that's seeing what's going on. I'm like, guys, <laughs> guys, you should, you should see this. It's like fucking mad. You know, grown adults, like 40 year old men that you think should know better. No, the hatred was so yeah. intense that. They just wanted to hurt you. And, and uh, again, like I'm not making any judgment on it. I'm just telling you how it was, right? Then you get to your, to your barracks and the first day you go on patrol. 
ours was a dawn patrol, so we went out about half five in the morning. The sun was just coming up um, over Belfast at the time. We always run out the gate, pepper potting like that. That way, if there's a sniper waiting for you, he can't, you know, there's less, less chance he'll get you. So you all bomb us out of the barracks. Or just, just, just literally leaving the barracks, there's a potential you're going to get shot. As soon as you go around that gate, you're expecting to get shot. Wow. You're, you're expecting to come under fire. Oh, definitely. It's like I say, it's a war zone, right? Wow. They're going to try and kill you. What better place? What what more yeah, guaranteed okay. place they can kill you is coming out that gate because they know you're going to come out that gate, right? What's That's, that? What's what's that like? I mean, I'm assuming you got used to it to an extent, but what's that like the first time when one of your governors, I don't know what they're called, the commander says, you've got to zigzag out of here because they're going to take shots at you. What's that like? Um, for me, I loved every second of it. <laughs> right. Amazing, amazing. But you've got to remember, I was nineteen, and I, I, Chris, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I was fearless. No, I, I totally believe you. Yeah, I, I'm I, still, I, I, I'm still pretty fearless now. If I was honest, is it probably my own shot? For all that training, I think that's what you were kind of getting at. I asked you what combat's like, and it's no. It, it was interesting to me that you talked about all that build up. They turned you into that person who 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 wants to do that job, and I suppose that's what that's all about. That's what all the training's about. Because if you didn't want to do it, they're they're, they're having problems, you know. Because if people don't want to run out there, well, that's not an army, is it? It's not a, not a military force. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, we were doing what we were literally trained to do. Um, I guess the point I'm trying to say is that I don't know. You often hear this thing. If you're in combat and you say you're not scared, you're lying. But I'll tell you from the bottom of my heart, even the last day there, in the last few days before we knew we were going home, we're going to get on that plane, this is all over, right? The intelligence was coming in that the the, the IRA had Semtex in every other lamppost, right? I'm not saying they did, but this was the intelligence. It's like these lampposts are going to go bang. When they go bang, that's it. You've got no legs left, right? If, if you're still alive, that, you know, to, to appreciate legs, that is, right? And l- literally for the last week, I just walked down the white line in the middle of the street. I stayed away. You know, I'd rather take my chances with a sniper than be near that lamppost or that dustbin. Yeah, and yeah. even then, when you're walking down the road, you're still zigzagging like this. You're still up on your sights, ready at any moment, and you've got to give that impression that you know you're you're up for this. You know you're not you're not just like bimbling down the street with a fucking fag in your mouth, right? So even though we bomb burst out that gate because that's what we're trained to do, and this you you've got to expect every eventuality. You then hit the street, and there's two things that happen. The first is you're patrolling down a main street in Britain. Right, carrying a freaking machine gun. Yeah, right. What is that about? Okay, Britain, Ireland, whatever. I don't. I. I, I honestly couldn't care. No disrespect to anyone. It's not. It's. I, I. I don't have any right to have an opinion on it. I'm. I, I love all people, right? So, but but I say Britain as in like I'm a British person, English. But but it, it's a city in Britain. Like it could be London or, or Leeds or Bradford or, or Exeter, but 
you've got a machine gun in your hand and you're walking down the central white line and cars are like, they know to not fucking get out your way. Do you know what I mean? It's it's really serious, Chris. It's, it's, it's really surreal, sorry, is the word I was looking for. Because, Chris, I put this to you when we chatted briefly on the phone the other day. Oh, you know, I've known, I've known, I saw a very interesting documentary about war correspondents, and when they're not at war, they're alcoholics, they're heroin addicts, and I'm, I can't help but think there must have been some kind of link between twenty-three years you were in the military, was it? No, I, I was only in, I say only. I, I did an average career, which is seven, seven years. Why did I? Where did I get twenty-three from? Oh, I, I know actually. Okay, but seven years walking down the road with a gun thinking you might be shot is still, all that stuff is quite intense. I can't help but think when you left the military, you must have been needing intensity in your life. It's a massive change coming out of the military. And, you know, life is quite boring. Life oh, is quite boring. As you, especially as you get older. And so, you know, I love life. Don't, don't, and I'm very grateful to be alive and I really enjoy life. But, Having done that sort of thing, and then one day, thanks a lot, mate. Blah blah, and then you walk out, give us your give us your kit or whatever, go get a job, mate. Go go start packing shelves or something. Wow. Can I? I, I just sorry to talk over you, Chris, but I just wanted to contrast that you're walking down the street with a machine gun, right? And it's quite a big thing. But here's here is the thing. The thing is, is Nothing happens. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally, nothing happens. But well, of course, it's not. You know, unless they're not going to like. Well, I mean, maybe they will. You you don't know. But I mean, it it it's not like the IRA are on you every single second of every day, like like the Battle of the Somme or something, right? Where they're <laughs> taking pot shots from trenches. Or what I mean is, you have this like fallow period. So our first week went by, and it was. Nothing happened. You started to chat the guy next to you and go, Smudge, all that, all that training we did, was that, is that overkill? Is it, you know, were they just trying to make us ready just, <laughs> just in case, but we're going to have four and a half, you know, five boring months here and not see any action at all. And this is where the complacency come, comes in, which obviously is a, is not good in, in a military uh, environment. Well, at the end of that week, or it might even have been a week and a half, my team, so um, in fact, my, my troop, we got moved to another location. Um, anybody who's familiar with the military or Belfast will know Girdwood Park, right? So we got moved over there. And the reason was they were voting. And the IRA has always traditionally tried to interrupt the voting process because obviously it's a British democratic, <laughs> democratic, he says, <laughs> allegedly democratic process, right? And they will always try and interrupt it. So try and cut along through short. So we're at this new barracks. We're going in a new briefing room with guys that we've, we, we've never really, we're in the same unit for two commander, but we don't know these guys, right? So we're all kind of, meeting people and saying hi and letting them know who we are. We went out the gate and as we we were bomb bursting out the gate, this huge explosion went up and it, it, and you don't know 
you, you hear it, but you don't know where it is if you can't feel the blast. So, again, make ready. We all make ready. We took cover beyond these big boulders they had in front of the camp. It turned out as we'd run out the front gate, the IRA had blown up a, a Sanger, which is a lookout post, on the road at the back, right? Wow. So we all went back in, re- reorganised, and I, I don't know if anyone had, can't remember if anyone was hurt. Um, and then we went out again, so we tried to restart our patrol. And we got up into an area called the Ardoin, which is a very famous part of um, yeah. in North Belfast. And as we stepped foot, step foot onto a park, the army guy that was with us, because we didn't know the ground, we didn't know where, you know, it was our first day here, right? We got the map, but we still don't really know. They put an army guy from the previous regiment with us. He's like, right, fellas, let's we'll break out into diamond formation, cut across the grass. This alleyway is notorious for IEDs, so improvised explosives. So obviously without any, no one has to say anything. You just break into diamond formation and you, we started patrolling across this grass. And as I sort of stepped foot on the grass, there it was just bang, 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 like that. And it's, fuck, that's high velocity <laughs> rifle shots coming at us. And I'm looking at the grass. And I can see it flicking up Shit. in front of me. So the guy's shooting at me by this time, right? What had happened is he'd already... Ah, this is where the weird thing, what, what I was telling you earlier, comes in. <laughs> Our brick commander shouts, Take cover! And all you can hear is... Ch-ch-ch! And that sound of cocking mechanisms is ricocheting off the walls around this park. We legged it for this this building at the far end of the park dived behind it and as i as i looked out behind this building to try and get some shots off at the sniper there's jock laying out on his front 30 meters away right and again i thought oh there's Same all us. the training yeah, thing yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah there's all us you know we weren't panicking I wasn't I honestly wasn't panicking, but you gotta get a move on, you know, if you're being if if, if the grass is kicking up, you've got to start zigzagging, get out there. We crashed behind this building. I looked at John and I thought, Oh, he's taking cover on the grass. Good effort, John. <laughs> that, that's really br- No, of course he hadn't. He'd been fucking hit, hadn't he? Right? It, and um so it took me a second to realise this because of the training story, exactly the same thing had happened, exactly. I look there, there's my oppo, spark out on his belly, right? His equipment was all around him, and that didn't really click at the time. So I started running back to get him, because I'm the first aid up. Plus, if I was honest, I got that kind of personality. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not going to let my mate lie out there in the open with a sniper who can just pick him off, right? And as I started to run back, my team are shouting, Chris, get the fuck down. Get the fuck down. And I'm, I'm like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Yeah, I just, it, morally, I couldn't do it, Chris. So I, I just went to continue. And as I did, Jock's head lifted up and he looked straight at us. And I realised then he's concussed. He's in shock, right? 
and he went like this, saw his rifle there, and it's so drummed into you never to leave, lose your rifle, right? He grabbed his rifle, grabbed his electronic equipment, and he come running over, collapsed down behind his boot, and he's, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. So I rip open his flat jacket, I rip open his combat jacket, and Jock, you're not fucking it. <laughs> I am, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm Jock, I can't find any fucking holes, right? It really was like that. He, but this guy's, you know, he knows he's been here. I just can't find the, the entry or exit wounds, right? Anyway, all, it all came out in a wash that the sniper had opened up from behind. That's why they hit Jock, because he was our tail end Charlie. Wow. The first round had gone through the aerial on his electronic equipment and chopped it off, right? Wow. Literally, you chopped the aerial off his, the antenna off his equipment. The second round had gone through his rifle sling. The third round had hit him in the chest on his Aniba vest, which is a, like a flat jacket, right? You've got a big plate over your heart, like a hardened fiberglass plate. But it hadn't even hit the plate. It had gone above it, right? So hit him there. Funnily enough, the round, which was a 7.62 short, fired from an AK-47, so Kalashnikov, had jumped up and landed in his pocket, right? (laughs) Still had the round on him, right? Amazing. So, of course, being hit by 7.62 from such a close range was was like being hit with with a sledgehammer, with Jeff Capes or something, right? Hitting you as hard as he can. That's why... Jock had been spun around. All wow. his equipment had literally flown off him. And that's why he knew he had been hit. But I can't find any holes, right? Wow. Um, so, while I'm saying this, I'm trying to um, give the opposite of what it was like going out that gate on the first day when nothing happened. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is shit. We're all trained for this. Come on. Somebody should go. When it actually goes off, well, you know, it's, yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's quite something, Chris, you know, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite something. And of course, in all of our scenarios, and we got sniped at twice, I think, on that tour, my, my particular team, um, no one got badly injured. What I'm trying to say is we didn't have to like fucking pick up people's legs and eyes and ears and, um, you know, go and scrape them off bushes and shit like the lads in the Middle East have had to, had to do, yeah, right? right. Um, it's, but does that answer your question? Yeah, no, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Hey, I'm going to listen- come I'm going to come on your podcast again, mate, because you're a great host. <laughs> no problem, it's my 100th. <laughs> well, congratulations. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gone well. Sorry about the technical difficulties. I, I blame my producer, Chris. Oh, well, um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll Chris, I am going to have to wrap up this task because it's nearly 4 a.m. my time and uh, I've got to get some sleep. Chris, you've another 10 minutes, though. Hey, you, well, shall we take two questions each from the live chat? Yeah, no problem. All right. Got them. For our friends at home, uh, just uh, say hello to my American brother, Jameson. Hello, brother. US Marine. 
Boorah, is it? Is it Boorah? Uh, so, yeah, friends at home, two questions for Chrissy, two questions for me, and then we'll answer them. And then we're going to say goodbye. Uh, it's been, can I also say, it's been amazing watching my people chatting with your people, really getting on um, great stuff. It's what, it's what life's about, getting on with people. So it's very encouraging. Yeah, it is. There's a lot, a lot of nice people out there, Chris, aren't there? You know, and a lot of people trying to make sense of this current shit show. I'm really proud. I've got people in my, you know, in my chat that, that they get it, you know. It's like they get it and it, and it's good because it keeps you sane. Because not everybody gets it, do they? Um, you've got a question from one of my lads, History Bro. Did you ever want to try out for 22 SAS? I don't know what 22 is either. As the 20, uh, 22 SAS is one of the SAS, um, like companies, I suppose you, um, I'm not really sure of the army structure because Marines is Navy, right? So you've got reserve SAS, which is 20, I think it's 23. Main SAS, you always hear about Hereford's 22. Um, yeah. Uh, did I ever want to try out for the SAS? Too hard, mate. Was that too hard to get in or they're too hard? No, I was too hard. <laughs> hey, boom. Yeah, I done. <laughs> I, I would have shown them all up and they would have been scared of me and no one wants that, do they? So You can't damage the reputation of Maggie's boys, not in those days. <laughs> no. Um, in all seriousness, utmost respect for, 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 the, for all the boys in our, in our special um, forces. They really are... They're a very professional breed of soldier, Chris, you know. And they and they they are fucking ferocious in battle. They just really are. It's like they they're up for it, you know. They they're just like a notch above the rest of the the British forces. They're just they're 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 there, and um, you know, yeah. So no, I didn't because I never really felt a massive like military type person. I was in the Marines because my mate bet me I couldn't join and that's how I ended Incredible. up in the Marines, you know. Can, can you people believe he just said that after the previous story? You're hilarious. Yeah, but yeah. I'm a, maybe I'm an enigma, Chris, aren't I a bit? I know I really am. I, rec I recognise it myself. A contradiction or two in there. I yeah. I'll certainly give you that. I'm a pacifist that loves scrapping, so that's, I don't know. <laughs> But now I try. Now I try and scrap the right enemy, and we, you know, we're all starting to see who they are. So no, I didn't. Um, had I had a, like a twenty-two career, would I have liked to do it? Yeah, absolutely. Would have loved to, to um, try for the SBS or the SES. I'll be the first to admit, though, I wasn't that kind of person when I'm in. Now I can do the ultra marathons and the running the length of the UK and Ironman and all that stuff, and I find them pretty easy if I was honest <laughs> I shouldn't say that should I but you know I ran at the end of a I did four Ironmen together um, so that was an, a nine mile swim four on, jumped on the bike cycled 450 miles and then I ran 108 miles non, 108 
it did it over seven days, right? But the 108 wow. mile run was non-stop. And so now at this grand old age of 50, I've found out that I'm actually, I've got quite some endurance in me. But back then when I was you know, in my 20s, I, was, I didn't feel particularly, you know, I wasn't a wimp or anything, but I just didn't feel I had what it took for special forces. So, sorry, a bit of a long-winded answer there. Uh, is it Agista? Agista? Uh, but no, I'm getting my, that's history, bro. Um, I can answer this next one if that's all right. Chris T, who are the best soldiers in the world? Uh, Agista, they are the Royal Marines Commandos. Uh, and I'm not biased. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> but um, I'm going to give the paras a shout because uh, I've met some wonderful paras through doing the podcast. And um, there you go. And they are actually soldiers because we're mariners. Uh, so there's your answer. Uh, I, I don't think anyone's going to have any questions for me, but Dave Batch has asked, which action man was your favourite? Moulded or gripping hands? Beard or no beard? Eagleized or fixed? And I've got an answer to this one. When when I was very young, I don't want to get the violins out, but we were skint, and my mother got me a load of action men from a jumble sale. They had moulded hair, not even the fur. Their hands were stuck. All their outfits were German. I mean, it was kind of that era, wasn't it? And uh, they were my favourite because I did end up with the eagle-eyes ones with the rubber hands, but I was too old really by then. And I, I absolutely loved my little German action men when I was about five or six. They meant the world to me. And uh, even as I got older, they started losing limbs, which I don't want to joke about that, but it, you know, it kind of added to it. They were, they'd been through the their battles in their own way. You know, they'd been through the washing machine a couple of times, and uh, literally. So, yeah, I can answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll briefly tell you my Action Man story, right? It's, I think I incorporated it into one of my novels. But when I did my parachute course, I was with this couple of really funny army guys from 2-9 Commando. So I was a Royal Marines Commando, which is part of the Navy. They were army. They were na uh, army commanders, right? Anyway, there's this guy called Ken. It's just some people you meet in the forces are funny as fuck. They are just so funny. They just some people are, some people ain't, and these guys yeah. are they can entertain the whole troop just just like that. Anyway, one of the things they drill into you when you're in the drill shed in the on the parachute course is this big shed, it's full of like strings that you strap webbing that you tie yourself to the ceiling, you swing around doing all your drills. And one of them is you look up, you've got a twist. What do you do? Pull your reserve. You look up, your parachute's malfunction. What do you do? Pull your reserve. You look up, your parachute hasn't opened. What do you do? Pull your reserve, right? So we're in a naffy that evening, and Ken's telling us about his action man. What's a like, naffy? Oh, naffy, like uh, it's, it's um, where you go for a beer, right? It's like the bar. It's also the shop, which is a bit confusing, but it's Navy, Army, Air Force. Inventory. Fucking <laughs> Institute. I, I... But anyway, we're in the Nathan having a beer, and Ken's telling us, telling us about his action man when he was a kid. He said, yeah, I love my action man. So I used to, you know, 
put his little uniform on and brush his hair and so you know I'd I'd make him a parachute out of Tesco's bags, right? Or, or carrier bags. And I'd go up. He, he said, I'd go upstairs to my bedroom window and I'd chuck Action Man out. You know, I'd run down the street to, to, to go and get him. He said, but one time, I threw Action Man out the window. He says, when I ran out in the street, he's all busted up. He's like, got black eyes. Lips bleeding, bloody, <laughs> his arms ripped off, his legs are all broken. We're like, one of the lads goes, what happened? Ken goes, didn't pull his reserve. There you go. <laughs> but one, one last little adding, when I'm in the plane... We've done our balloon jump, right? It's your first jump. You go up in the plane in the Hercules. You're all in sticks of 30 each side of the plane. And it's the big one, right? It's great. It's absolutely great. But I'm there. Always make, always made sure I was last to get on the plane because then I knew I'd be the first to jump out, which was just something I was just like an idiosyncrasy of mine. So I'm there in the door and the red light's on. You're waiting for the green light. It's green on. Go! I'm there in the door, and I hear this shout, Chris, Chris. And I look over, and it's Ken at the back of the plane. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, remember my action, man. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you've been absolutely wonderful, mate. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for celebrating my 100th centenary or I, I don't cent, cent, I don't even know what you're supposed to call it because it's not a birthday but my hundred mark my hundred mark oh well done man good stuff many well, people talk about setting up channels and the amount of people who told me they're going to do it probably in the 30s or 40s and about two of them have I know what it's like it's a lot of work you've got a team with you and it's still a lot of work a lot of effort so congratulations absolutely Chris, ordinarily, I'd say stay on the line, but I know what time it is over there. Yeah, so man, I'm, go. I'm going to say big love to all our friends at home, everybody in the stream. You've been amazing. Brooke, uh, much love to you, Brooke, for sorting out my life for me and moderating. Um, see you all again soon. I'm going to play my outro. And after it, I won't. See you until the next one, Chris. So thank you. Ever so much. Chris, Chris, before the outro, I've got a real life jet fighter pilot coming on my four o'clock UK time stream on Friday. So that could be interesting. Not Tim by any chance, is it? Yes. Yes. Wonderful man. Good friend of mine. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Mate, you'll, you'll enjoy that. He's an absolutely, um, he's absolutely lovely. He's a very kind man. And yes. Yes. I will excellent. I will um, set a reminder for that. And yeah, can I just say, um, Agista, thank you very <laughs> much for ten pounds for a beer. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Somebody else gave money in the live chat, but it's gone now, and I didn't get a chance to see it. So whoever it was, ping me your name. Chris I... Holloway. It was Chris Holloway. Was it Chris? Thank you, Chris. Chris, can I just tell you, because every time you say Agista, I laugh, right? That geezer, that's not his real name. When I was a kid, I'd done a Ouija board with a couple of mates, and it spelled out Agista. 
I told that story. I said to everyone how it's traumatised me through life and this bastard has changed his name. And it keeps coming up. And to hear you say it tonight, I didn't know he was in the chat. And when you said Agisto, I thought, what the fuck? So, so he's having absolute laughs with this one. So props to him. <laughs> <laughs> what does, um, Chris, what does props mean? Um, well, um, well done. Well done to them. Where did he come from? It's just come up in the last like five years or something, isn't it? Um, where, what's the root of it you're asking me? I, I'd have to guess and I can't. Or maybe someone in the chat will know. I thought it was short for something like proper something, but, but obviously it not. It probably is. Yeah, it probably yeah. is, but I don't know. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I'm going to hit my outro. Chris, massive thank you, mate. Let's chat soon, yeah? Yeah, for sure. Look after yourself, Chris. Take care. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.